episode number 327 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos, and in this week's extra special show, we are joined by Ariel Tweeto to talk about the challenges of life and flying in Alaska. We update you on the big stories hitting the aviation news wires this week. In today's Plain Truth, we find out why the window shades need to be open for takeoff and landing, and Sean Van Hatten chats to us about being a test pilot. So joining me this week, as always, in a very hot and stuffy PTUK studios, pressing all the right buttons, it's of course Matt Smith. I'll bring my fader up, shall I? Hello everyone, you're right. It is water. No, it is. It is definitely water here. Uh, have you got your your screen there to, to show everyone what the temperature here is? Yeah, in not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie, guys. Look, oh, it's that dropped. Is, it's actually. It's, hold on, we're this side, this side. Twenty six point nine degrees Celsius. <laughs> I, know. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but yeah, it's a um, lot enough. Yeah. <laughs> for the UK, that for the UK, that's a really good summer. It is. That's not bad going at all, is it? That is not bad going. So, uh, are you missing the studio, Carlos? I'm missing being in the studio with you, Matt. I tell oh. you, it is. It's, 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 it's nice to be here, and it's nice to have access to regular beers, but nothing well, are, you, are, you, are you saying my drink service is not good enough? Is that, is <laughs> no, that what you're no, trying to say? Not at all. Rude. But it's, 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 it's a bit different. You know, it's nice to have, you know, when we're both sitting side by side, and it's a bit more, a bit more fun when we're all together. Well, that's true, absolutely. It's, oh, 89 Fahrenheit, apparently. Uh, Lane has just done a conversion for us. So there we are. Okay, He just 89. did that in his head and everything. He's well posh. <laughs> that sounds hotter than 26. Anyway. It does, um, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. <laughs> so, uh, Nev, unfortunately, can't be with us this week. He is uh, off on his holidays, uh, sunning himself in, I think he's in Scotland, isn't he, Matt? Uh, yes, I think so. He's, yeah. he's, got, he's gone away with he's gone with away with Mrs. Mrs. Nev, hasn't he? Mrs. Nev, yeah. He's yeah. Um, hopefully buying us all a lovely stick of rock from uh, Scotland, <laughs> so we'll have that in next week's show. But uh, joining us as always from his studio in Charlotte is, of course, the fantastic Armando. Hey guys, always happy to be here live. This week was kind of a regular week. I was spent the beginning of the week flying my regular route out of Atlanta, Hartsfield, and. Uh, other than that, I've, got, I've actually got two weeks off of work now. So like I told you guys, my hours got reduced a little bit, much like everybody else in the industry. So uh, we, my family and I took a family camping trip out into the wilds. True wild camping. No facilities. The girls did great. We literally walked in about 45 minutes ago. Oh, wow. So, But uh, we got here, and I am so excited about today's show. As we probably, probably more excited than I've been in a long time, but I'm ready. I'm ready for it. <laughs> all right, I'm slightly offended, but you know, all right. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> so uh, we're going to thank uh, everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. All the usual family members in there. Uh, just going to run through a few of our family members in there. So we've got Alex Robinson. Hello to you, Doctor Steph, Auntie Liz in Canada. Uh, we've got uh, Richard Adams, Lane Street, just scrolling down. Hope so. Miss Tony S. Hello to you, Tony S. Uh, Paul Tricker, one of our local listeners. Jenny, uh, Jenny in Rome. Hello to you, Jenny. Uh, hope things are warm in uh, Rome. Graham Haley, our ATC controller from here in the UK. Uh, Alex Robinson. Um, I'm just scrolling down to make sure I don't miss anyone. And Airliners Live. Ooh. Hello to you, Airliners Live. Andy, hello to you. And, uh, yeah, a big hello to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. So don't forget, if you haven't already done it and uh, you are watching us on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and uh, hit the bell icon, which is right next to it, and you'll be notified when we are live and recording new episodes because we'd love to have you in the chat room. Oh, yeah. 
So the competition, don't forget as well, the competition that we're running at the moment to win that £150 voucher to spend in the Plain Reclaimer store, very kindly donated by Andrew Keegan in episode 324. Uh, just send us uh, some of your aviation in my life feedback, either via uh, email or audio or video, you can send it as well. Um, if you can send it in to us, a usual uh, email address, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. We'd love to hear from you about all about aviation in your life. And then we're going to put your names in a hat, draw them out, and uh, you could be in with a chance of winning that uh, £150 voucher, which is pretty damn awesome. So joining us on this week's show, we have two very special guests indeed. And uh, obviously, we have to have ladies first. Obviously. Those are the rules. Those are the rules. We are very British, you see. <laughs> and uh, obviously, we have to, yes, we have to be very, very good for you. Very, very good. But, uh, joining us on the show this week, uh, she is a star of the Flying Wild Alaska series that was broadcast on the Discovery Channel uh, not so long back. Uh, so we welcome onto the show, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Ariel Tweeto. Hello. Hi. Well, first off, my dad will be so ticked if you say I'm the star of the show. He's like, I'm the star of the show. <laughs> That's how he introduces himself. Now he's like, my name's Jim Tweedo, star of Flying Wild Alaska. I've actually heard him say that before. But um, yeah, well, so good to be here. Thank you, guys. And um, is, my camera's probably really crooked. The, view, the viewers oh, love no, the aerial. It's fine. That is, that is a beautiful location. So tell us about where you are. Um, so I'm actually in Laguna Beach right now, oh. um, California, and um, I'm staying with the family, the director of a new movie that I just shot, and it's the new movie's called Into America's Wild. I filmed it with um, the first Native American astronaut, and it's me and him going across America and just goofing off and getting kids back in nature, and I got to learn how to surf and kiteboard and mountain bike and all this stuff, and so... Um, Super fun project. It premiered a week before the theaters closed down. Oh wow! So we're oh, timing, yeah, timing so, there, yeah. Perfect, perfect <laughs> timing. It's it sucks because I, I was supposed to go to like sixty different countries for the premiere. Oh wow! Um, and so it's all postponed. And so I think we are going to like Ireland, Scotland, somewhere like London. Oh cool! Um, all over to promote it once this all ends because it's going to end. Oh, absolutely. Well, but, well, do do make sure you let us know when you when you're in the UK. Let us know, and we'll we'll come and buy you a beer. There you are. Look. Yes. <laughs> oh, what about two? two yeah, all right. Yes, two. that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the PTUK coffers can stretch stretch that. Uh, we're actually going to come back to uh, the, your uh, latest project later on. We've actually got the uh, trailer to play out, which we're looking forward to we have, yeah. sharing uh, with everyone. So we'll, play, we'll we'll come back to that a bit later on. So joining cool. us as well, we have another star guest. I know this, this show is just, we're going to have to like have a, at least a 10-hour show this week. Oh, but no. uh, <laughs> joining, us, <laughs> joining us this week as well with an, another equally amazing background, it uh, is the legend. That is Sean Van Hatten. Hello to you, Sean. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, now, now, is it, everybody's trying to one-up us this week, aren't they, with their backgrounds? So tell, tell me about this beautiful aircraft that's just behind you there, Sean. Yeah, so I'm uh, here. Most of the work I've been doing recently has been with Stratus Aircraft here in uh, Redmond, Oregon. And behind me here is the proof-of-concept airplane that we did. Um, airplane first flew in 2016, I think it was. Um, yeah, November 2016. We put about 230, 250 hours of flight test time on it in the past four years and um, we actually just did the first flight which i'm sure we'll talk about later first flight on the new uh, prototype 716x 
which is down in another hangar they just ran up here from so wow oh. <laughs> it definitely it definitely looks very very clean and shiny um yeah. <laughs> i will say sean like yeah, fortunately uh fortunately it's uh you know about six seven feet away so you can't see the inch layer of dust over the top of it but yeah it certainly looks uh, shiny from where it is right now so. <laughs> for the moment anyway yeah yep oh oh <laughs> we all have lives we all, yeah, we all, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Sorry, guys, I have kids running in here. I'll, they're going to be out in a second. No, nah, that's all good. That's no, fine, no, that's absolutely. fine. Absolutely, it's awesome. No, normally, I have a cat sort of running in and out of here, Ariel, and, and then uh, Matt normally has a, a dog running in, yes, a, in and yeah. out of his usual studio. Careless, usual yeah. Careless. yeah, I also have a six-year-old and two dogs, which are always trying to, you know, go at the microphone at the same time, so. <laughs> anyway, right, okay, so, so, uh, Kids are out. Yeah. <laughs> so just, uh, yeah. so just like, oh, no. we're gonna we're gonna see for those of you guys watching on the YouTube feed, you're gonna see two little kids like running into the beach and the and the surf in the background. <laughs> like, like, parenting oh, no. 101. <laughs> so before before we move on uh, with uh, our talk with Ariel, just a quick note for everyone watching: this show is going to be just a little bit different to how it normally would play out each week. We're going to have a chat with Ariel first. And uh, then we're going to do a bit of a slight bit of news and bits and pieces uh, with the highlights of what's been going on this week uh, with a few stories we've picked out. And then we're going to have a chat with uh, Sean at the end of the show with a few other little segments in the middle to sort of pad out things with the plain truths and also um, some ads as well. But uh, moving swiftly on, we're going to have a chat with you, Ariel, if that's OK. We're going to uh, obviously admire the view behind you. But um, I know. I'm so jealous. <laughs> So, Ariel, obviously, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. And uh, so, basically, obviously, we all saw the, the series um, on Discovery. I know I, I absolutely, me and Armando thoroughly enjoyed the series. It's absolutely amazing. But uh, your, your, you. your, uh, your family uh, uh, has arguably done more than anyone to promote aviation in Alaska. So how did the, the whole show sort of come out? How did the Discovery Channel kind of approach you guys, was it? You know, it's someone came and you saw you one day. and So, no, it's actually a way different story, and a lot of people don't know this. So I actually went to school for TV and film production and in California. And so I um, did a little show on ABC called Wipeout. It was a big competition show. And so on that show, I did really – I got in, like, second place, and then they invited me back and, like, two more times to compete – and I just kept breaking things and then having a blast. And they were like, oh, yay, this is. But then I fell in love with I'm like, people do this for a living. People like, I want to keep making TV shows. So I met a guy on the show. He was our safety coordinator. And he had just um, had just been to Alaska and Deadliest um, Catch just came out. So me and him, we were like, hey, my family's interesting. My dad runs an airline. My, everyone in my family, they're all pilots. I was like, let's do a show about my family. So me and him, I think I was 20, we pitched it to um, all over Fox, ABC, NBC, Discovery. And it took like a year, like a year to pitch. And then, um, yeah, and I didn't really tell my parents about it. And we just sort of a film crew showed up and my dad was like, why aren't you in college? And and then then we started filming for like three and a half years. But yeah, so me and a friend actually created it. That's, that's pretty awesome that your daughter that's in college just shows up with a film crew to, you, <laughs> to your well, house, he, your company. 
Well, he didn't think it was that awesome at first. So they, they're, but and they still, they're like, our family's really not that interesting. Like we're just like everybody else. We're pretty like just just a normal family. And so, yeah, he didn't think it would work. And after though, a couple of our fam, like our the film crew lived with my parents after the show ended. They like it just we be, all became this big family, and everyone just like loved my parents. So they like they were like, can we just live with you guys for a while? And that, that, that was actually one of my questions is once 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 it got pitched and they showed up with the with the rigs and the lights and the microphones and the cameras, how did that go? Was it was it disruptive to the operation? Was it kind of what we would all envision like this big film crew or was it like just, just a couple guys with? with cameras and microphones so ours was um it was pretty big so in in our like so we had three bases it was in Unicleet where my family's from and then we had another crew in Bethel and then another one in Nome and it just depend it depends on who had the coolest story of the day and so um yeah and so we had like probably like 15 to 20 people on our crew but then like in our little airport um it would be maybe like five people, like two cameras, two producers, and then a sound guy. Um, and so it, for, for like the first week, it was a little weird. It's always weird having a camera like right in your face, especially if you're like having a bad day or if you're tired. Or like we had a couple episodes where some people like passed away. And so in those moments, you're like, um, I just want to be by myself, get the camera away. But as a producer, you're like, no, get a camera in front of your face. Um, so <laughs> So it took it took a little while to get used to, but after that, I mean, you forget they're there. Well, that's 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 pretty cool, Carlos. Did you have one? Yeah. Um, so obviously, Alaska can be quite a harsh and very environment to, to obviously fly in. Um, you know, we have snow in this country, but as me and Matt know, we get we get about three flakes of snow, and that is about <laughs> all we. Manage. That doesn't count as snow. It doesn't snow in England. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. So no, we I don't get snow. That... We don't get snow in England. We get snow. Snow. Yeah. Snow. That's all we get. Yeah. <laughs> so what? Uh, what are some of the craziest stories uh, you've heard or experienced? Obviously, with the with the whole environment of flying in Alaska. Well, it's always. I mean, where I'm from, we're right on the coast, right on the Bering Sea. So it's just it's always windy. It's like and and so just like the crosswind landings are always insane. Um, my dad could line, land like on one of the runways. I mean, he could land when he's coming into the wind and it's blowing like 45, 50 knots. Like he, it, it looks like he's going backwards. Like we'll watch him. We're like, no way he's going to do this. And it's, it's, it's seriously, he looks like a helicopter. It just like drops. But, um, wow. so the, the wind, the wind's always crazy. And then the, I mean, the weather changes like in, in, in an instant, you could, it could be sunny like this. And then in a minute fog. So the, I would say the weather is just pretty insane. Um, the one good thing that I love about flying in Alaska is you don't really have, like, airspace. Like, you're, you could be flying in the middle of nowhere and, well, FAA, whatever, they, they could hear this one. But you could be flying, like, 20 feet above the tundra and just be like, whoa, this is amazing. But there's no <laughs> cities, no villages around you for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And so you're not constantly on the radio. You don't have to constantly be, like, looking for other planes coming in and like flying here in at near LAX is crazy. You'll be like, I'll be flying in this little experimental plane and then below you are like jumbo jets coming in and you're like, Whoa, this is nuts. So I actually think it's way scarier flying in California than in Alaska, just because I'm not used to the radio communication that goes on. 
And I yeah. love to talk. So it's weird that like the thing that scares me about flying is talking on the radio. <laughs> yeah, and and Sean, uh, feel free to jump in. Sean Van Hatten is is uh, probably flown all kinds of different places. Have you have you ever shown, uh, flown up in Alaska, Sean? Yeah, I've been to Alaska several times. Uh, the first time was we were doing a um, we t- took six epic LTs around the world, and we came wow. through. Uh, we actually originally we were going to go into Petropavlovsk and then go over to Adak and then Anchorage. But um, when we were coming out of Petro, the weather was terrible in Adak, so we actually jumped back to Magadan. And then shot over Anadir up into Nome, landed into Nome, oh, and wow. then uh, cleared customs there and kept on going. The next trip I had was really crazy. It was about a year and a half later, uh, or two years later. Um, I took a Pitts S2B from Seattle, Washington, to Anchorage over the Alcan Highway, picked up a Pitts S2AE, and then ferried that back down the Alcan Highway. And then two weeks later, went back up to Anchorage, picked, picked up that original Pitts, and they came back down. Um, which involved all kinds of shenanigans because it's not quite enough fuel for a pits to actually make it all the way and like putting jerry cans in the front seat, strapping them in and, <laughs> and uh, landing, you know, questionably legally at some gravel strips in Canada. Yeah, all kinds of fun stuff. So, <laughs> so uh, what, Ariel, when, when you were flying up there and filming this, so you, you, were, you had already lived in California. So I think, I think every pilot, every aviator has this just amazing dream of what flying in Alaska is like. I mean, we all want to be a bush pilot uh, for like a week. Um, yeah, for like a day. Yeah. You know, and, and there's actually a place in, I think it's Ireland or maybe it's in Scotland that they, they do the bush pilot experience for one week. You get to fly a cub on, on, on big tires and go land in some gravel strips. I'm sure it's very safe and, and pre-planned, yeah. but did you, <laughs> did you know at the time like what a what a dream this was for every pilot out there. No, I didn't because because I grew up with with it and it is not glamorous. I mean, me and my sisters were the one loading my dad's plane. So you're taking you're loading like triple mailers of pop. It's like the those things are heavy and and it's negative fifty and and you're loading eggs, dropping eggs. My parents are yelling at us. Like I was at like just it's 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 just cold and you're you're trying to get in as quick as you can and load as fast as you can so for me like yeah I didn't think other people like had this dream of doing it until our show I'm like what people actually want to come up and move from like Florida to Alaska and be like flying this like treacherous weather Um, but I think it's super cool like it's awesome that people from all over the world have been interested in like the lifestyle that we live and and it is like I mean you do get a big sense of like gratification from doing it because you're helping the people out in rural Alaska the only way in and out of our village is by airplane so you're taking people that are sick you're bringing people their mail you're bringing people food and so I, I, you do get a big sense of like pride um, by like flying for remote airlines Wow. Yeah. A, a little bit of feedback, actually, from uh, somebody in the, in the chat room here. So Marie ZP says, uh, that was a great story of how the show got started, Ariel. We miss watching you and your family. Isn't that nice? Oh. Thank you. And I should give a shout out to the other, the creator, Tommy Baynard. He was the guy that I met on Wipeout. And um, yeah, just as, he was like super cool guy. And he just believed that we had a great story to tell. And um, yeah, and so me and him pitched it and um, got it going. But yeah, a lot of people don't know that, and it's not like I'm. I mean, I'm not going to take credit for it, but then it was um, just a good collaboration between like our family and Tommy. So, speaking of like a great story, and and I think 
Okay, so your dad would get mad if we said that you were the star of the show. But you were, but you know, everybody, everybody loved watching Ariel. And you're, and you're, oh my gosh, you're just your positive attitude when things were just going crazy. But I think one of the most memorable points in the show was your first flight with John Ponce. Like, and, and I think Matt's going to play out that, that a little snippet of yeah. that video, but do you still remember that day? And, and what, what was oh, that the, like? The solo flight, yeah. I, my solo flight or my first flight with Ponce? That was your, your first flight with, with John is, I think, what, what, okay. what Matt's going to play and out. I'll be honest. I watched half of our first, um, like our premiere, and then I went to the bar. <laughs> <'Cause> I, <laughs> I, I, I can't watch myself on TV. I watched it for like 10 minutes, and I'm like, that's how I talk. That's how I walk. It looked like I have to constantly use bathroom. <laughs> and then, so, so after that, our producers were like, you're not allowed to watch any of these episodes because you just ripped yourself apart. So I don't know how they cut any of the episodes. People are like, you did this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did do that. And then so, um, I, yeah, I, I flying with Ponzo, like, man, he, the best instructor. He made me so comfortable. He is like a brother. He became like one of my best friends. Um, and he was just so patient with me. You have to, I mean, to teach this, this thing right here, like how to fly, it takes a lot of patience. Um, and then like part of me, I, I do goof off a lot, but then he made me, he was like, Hey, you have to like calm down, like be a little mature, like let's get in this together. And he would help me. We would go to these sandbars and then we would bring all my study books. And cause if I'm around people, like I, I need to, I get FOMO really bad and I have to constantly be in conversations and I want to go play with everyone. And so he would literally remove me from civil, like civilization and be like, okay, we're going to sit down on the sandbar, just me and you, and let's get through this chapter. And so like, it was definitely because of Ponce that I got my license and actually got through ground school and everything. Oh, that's the exact opposite experience of every private pilot who, <laughs> uh, not in a sandbar, had to sit in some eight foot by eight foot 1947 built uh, room with a bunch of cut off solo t-shirts uh, <laughs> with old well, Cheetos you, in the corner. <laughs> well, if you would have stuck me in a room with a bunch of guys, I would have been like passing love letters to all of them and I would have missed like all, all my like studies. <laughs> so, so yeah, you have to, I, I know my strengths and my weaknesses and uh, definitely my, one of my weaknesses is just being around people and chatting too much. And I just, I just love, and that's why I love like making TV and films is because you get, you're constantly learning about different ways of living and different cultures. And um, just, it, it's just, it blows my mind how like, different people are but how similar we all are at the same time and i don't yeah i don't know but yeah flying with ponts so fun yeah so uh well obviously the airline era uh alaska when you were there um obviously you, you said earlier you were kind of loading like loads of stuff onto aircraft and so the light aircraft and stuff what was one of the most craziest things you, you ever had to load onto an aircraft Ooh, ooh that's a hard one we're, we're constantly loading, like, just dogs and animals, coffins, which isn't that exciting. Um, you know what? Like, a big one that people did, it started to do. We have, like, one restaurant in northwest Alaska, like, in our area, which is a pizza place. So people from different villages would order pizza. And then this would turn out to be, like, a $100 pizza. I'm like, really? Do you guys want pizza that bad? But, um, yeah, and so I don't... 
I mean, I know how I know how they feel. I'll be honest. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, we we didn't. I mean, you're you're loading essentials. There was a crap ton of diapers, a lot of pop, a lot of Doritos, a lot of ramen, a lot of milk, um, a lot of eggs. And I'm sorry if you're if you're watching this and I dropped all your eggs because that happened a lot. Um, but just a lot of like, just a lot of essentials that people need. So there wasn't really a lot of things that we were like, that's really weird. And, and, and I'm sure if it was weird, they had it wrapped up and I, I didn't break those rules. I never looked in people's luggage and stuff. And so there were times where I could like jiggle boxes and like, I know what's in here, but couldn't, couldn't open it. There, there was an episode, uh, era that you were in where you were on, I think it was one of your first solo flights and, the way the way the the episode show it and stuff you had I think you had a lot of cr- uh, crosswind uh, when you were landing and you're on your own and it was really tense you know you're watching the, the you're watching the, the program on telly like oh my god era was it was it really as like as really as it was tense? worse it was worse I uh, yeah well one they had my mom mic'd on the ground and yeah. that's why that's if you rewatch that part because I I did watch a little solo clip on YouTube. Um, but the whole time it's just beep, 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 because my mom is going crazy. And so, so I was doing my solo flight. So three takes off and landings. My first two, I was like, I can do this. Like, this is awesome. This is so cool. I'm in the plane by myself. Like, like what, what, what a feeling to be like, okay, I have my life in my hands. My dad can't come up here and rescue me. My mom can't come and like console me. Like, this is me. Like I got, like, I have to do this. Um, and so, yeah, the first two are great. I'm coming around to the second one or the third um, land, or I think I was like, I just took off and I was coming up and then I was turning, like, I think I was turning downwind and then my radios died, like something like my radios quit working and then the wind switched. And so, I'm, and then you're like, you're, you just get frazzled. So I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, why am I drifting so far away from like the runway? Why is it so far away now? I'm like, oh crap. And then, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to get my radios working. And so I go and I try to land, couldn't, couldn't get to the runway. Like I just, like, I, I was like, I cannot land this thing. So I went around again and then I'm sweating and I'm just like, oh crap, this is not good. <laughs> and so like I come in and I, then I was just like, I, it's getting windier. So I'm just going to lay this baby down. And so I go, like, I'm just like, ah, and I'm just, like, crabbing almost. And then I'm just like, crap. And in, the, in like, the footage, though, I close my eyes. I'm just like, ah. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, my God. But then I just, oh, my God, the best feeling in the world was when it just, like, bounced. And then it was like, okay, not going to, like, ruin this plane. I'm still alive. I'm still here. Like, and then, yeah, so that was scary. And that definitely humbled me because those first two, I was like, I got this. This is super easy. Why, why do people make such a big deal about it? And then that third one, I was like, Oh geez, like this is not good. Um, so yeah, that was a little scary, but, um, yeah. And so, yeah, it was definitely not planned. And, um, the producers were like, yeah, you want to go up and do a couple more. We need to get some other, like some other shots. And I'm like, Nope, I am done for the day. <laughs> like, I need to go and like wipe the sweat off of everything. And, um, let's do something else. <laughs> You know, what's funny is I think you just stole Sean's thunder because Sean was going to talk to us about one, uh, one of his maydays that he had uh, as a Reno air race pilot. But Sean, that pretty much sums it up, right? You just kind of went, oh, crap, close your eyes and bounce down the runway, right? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, That's pretty the much 15 second version. <laughs> oh my God, Sean, do you, so do you race the, um, in Reno? Yeah, I race in the sport class at Reno. I've uh, been racing there about four years, uh, formation instructor, check pilot, and all that kind of fun stuff. We've been typically racing top of the silver, bottom of the gold, so 300 to 350 mile an hour range. Oh, so cool. I wonder if I saw you. I used to go, I've been there a couple times to watch Pete race the, um, Pete Sacanino. You know, Pete, Pete Sacanino. Yeah, I yeah. love him. So where I was in is like pit. Just like, yep. cheer, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the I'm, annoying one. That's probably way too loud and excited. But, I'm sure um, we've run into each other. You know, we always camp on the um, on the grounds there. We're right next to Camp Pete, so oh yay! Yeah. Oh, we've definitely run into when, each other. For next Reno, when it happens again, it's going to happen. We'll we'll have yep. a beer together. Sounds Perfect. great. Yeah, come on over to Team Havoc. We'll uh, we'll definitely hook you up with a beer or two. Oh, awesome! Cool. Well, I'm making it really sound that I love 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 the drinks. <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, beer. Yeah, anybody beer ever gets sponsor this? <laughs> If anybody ever gets a chance to come out to Reno, there there is the air racing, which I don't know, it's a pretty good part of the day, but it's really all the background. It's the hanging out in the hangars. Reno is probably one of the most intimate aviation experiences you can have where you can hang out with the fans, the crews, the pilots and everybody and then and then once the gates shut there are some awesome after parties okay yeah, Armando, yeah, you, you do you do realize Armando, you are now hooking us up for that don't you you realize that That's absolutely that. yeah we will do that sean <laughs> yeah. sean well, and i will do that for yeah, you guys yeah, yeah. armando's yeah, you guys one of our star to. star ramp guys and you know the the whole event wouldn't happen especially in the sport class without dedication to volunteers like himself so yeah he's there's somebody that can hook you up. It's him for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, oh. and, and that is the, honestly the, the reason that, w- that we had to make the decision to cancel Reno this year is it is just like Oshkosh, just like Sun and Fun. It is volunteer driven. And, you know, it was just too much of a risk this year to put um, a lot of our retire, uh, retiree volunteers uh, in that kind of, you know, personal risk. But mm. um, so, Ariel, everybody that listens to this show will have obviously watched the entire season or the all all seasons of Flying Wild Alaska probably multiple times, probably have posters up on the wall. Kids still do that. But I, I actually wanted to talk to you about some of your efforts after the show. So um, a, a little bit about Native Shorts, you know, you hosting Native Shorts and then uh, Into America's Wild, your choice how we want to do this. And, and something that's really important to us on this show is uh, Popping Bubbles. Right, because we we are just complete advocates of making sure that people get the help that they need, um, especially you know some of some of our uh, partner podcasts have done some features on on mental health and even alcoholism in aviation and, and just these things that were normally taboo subjects. But but I, I'd like for you to take a second to talk to us about popping bubbles. Um, and your efforts with that but um, feel free to like we'll, we'll start with native shorts because that was kind of the first thing that you did so why was that project particularly important to you that one that one well my co-host bird running water just is amazing and he's been a good friend and so he came up with the idea because he works with Sundance Institute's Native American and Indigenous program and so um I just love the concept because there's so many stories around the world told by indigenous filmmakers that don't get seen. And so it's just a way to like, just get some diversity out there and just show that like, man, there's some amazing storytellers all over like, um, like the Maori tribes in New Zealand, 
um, like just all over Northern Canada. There's some from Ireland. Like there's just like such great storytellers. But so Native Shorts is just Native Short Stories. I, I really was trying to pitch Native Pants for the like the season four. <laughs> and I was like, so we can do feature films. And it'll be called Native Pants. But um, yeah, so that one is just fun. And I think it's just really important for all people to be able to share stories. And um, they're really cool, though. You could find them, I believe it's on FNX, um, tv.com um, or you just google native shorts and then you should be able to watch the episode and there's an app to watch uh, um every yeah oh, oh cool awesome perfect yeah we'll put um, some links in the show notes so it, cool and, and you know and and that at the same time that flying wild alaska was happening or, or at least airing the uh, the whole alaska thing was so um just prevalent. And so we had some other sister shows that we won't mention their shows, but, mm-hmm. but, it, but Alaska was featured heavily for, for a couple years up there. But yeah. one of the things that we saw in some of those other shows, I remember Alaska state troopers was one of the shows, right? Um, I love that show, but that show particularly highlighted some of the challenges of living in remote areas, which, which kind of is, is one of the reasons you, you started popping bubbles, isn't oh. it? Yeah. So, um, no, it is. And so one thing really quick. So our show, what was really important for our family and for our producers and our whole team was just to be super authentic and just to show how life is in rural Alaska. And it's not all penguins and polar bears. Like it's, it's hard. It's like, it's a hard, um, lifestyle. I mean, you're isolated, you're in the middle of nowhere. Like they're, um, it's just, I mean, the weather, the darkness, the lack of like good nutritious food, like there's so much. And so we, we wanted to just for it to be real. And I think our team did a really good job on keeping it. Like it wasn't produ- like overproduced. Um, there was, I think by season three, we would have to like try to think of not, we wouldn't think of storylines, but we would be like, Hey, I wonder if Ariel and her sister went to the cabin what would happen? And so they'd be like, hey, you should invite your sister to go camping in your cabin this weekend. So it would be stuff like that. And that's um, and that's as produced as it would get. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really proud of how Flying Wild turned out. But I think uh, there was an episode that ta- talked about suicide. And so for me, um, I've lost over 30. I think I started, stopped counting at like 37 friends. I lost over half my class to suicide. And so when my best friend did it, I was just so confused because he, we like went to prom together. Like he was in college, had a girlfriend, so smart, very handsome, like charismatic. And then just one day decided to end his life. And so that just like, just pushed me over the edge. And I just was fed up and I'm like, we need to figure out like why this is happening to our people, why this is happening so often. Like why, why, why? And the more I ask that question, the more you realize that no one knows the answer and still don't. But for me, in order to prevent suicide, you have to show people that life is worth living. And life is like a roller coaster. It's You're going to have some amazing high times, and it's going to be so fun. But prepare yourself because there's you're going to be sad. And But then in those low times, know that, man, put your hands up because it's going to be so exciting again. And just know that you're going to go up and down. But so for me, in order to prevent suicide, you have to show people that life is worth living. You have to show kids that hey, like, look at me. I grew up in this little village and now I'm living my dream. I want to be Eskimo Oprah and I'm going to be Eskimo Oprah. <laughs> like, like no one's going to hold you back just because you're like from a small community, just because you look a certain way, just because you talk a certain way. And so the name came, I was talking with a, I think a news 
program in Canada when I was promoting it, but I was talking about how like all of us live in our own little bubble. We're scared to leave our village, to talk to people that look different from us, to talk to people that believe in different religions or politics, to um, try new things, to like be afraid. And we'd be so much happier if we just popped each other's bubbles. And so that's where the name came up. And yeah, now we do a lot of motivational speaking tours. I'm actually so excited because I'm teaming up with the company that does telehealth. And so now we're working on bringing free like therapy to the villages. So people, all you need is a phone and you could talk to someone, a professional, because we all need help. Like I don't wake up every day with like rainbows and Skittles coming out of like my nostrils. Like some days I'm just like a little bummed. And so I'm like, I want someone to talk to. And so it's that whole thing is like, it's okay to ask for help. We all need it. And, um, and yeah. And like for the little kids, it's like, man, have dreams, like set goals for yourself. Like, dream big and and you'll have an awesome life and then no like coping skills like you're gonna lose loved ones you're gonna break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend you're going to like wake up on the wrong side of the day and that shouldn't be the reason you end your life because it's hard um and so yeah i could go on and on but i won't rap, ramble anymore yeah i mean know that uh, so i did a 21 year career in the US Air Force and we often asked the same questions ourselves. We would try to find patterns, we would try to find indicators, um, and largely we discovered that that it wasn't it wasn't that easy. There were there everybody has their own journey and everybody has their own path that leads them to to uh, to that you know, that yeah. point in their lives. But so you so you've continued on and you said like one of the things that you love doing is just highlighting how basically how good it is to be alive. So, and, yeah. and that, you know, I'll let you talk about into American, into America as well. Because we we got to tie it to aviation somehow. So I yeah. did do a little bit of digging and I found out that it was partially sponsored by United Airlines. So easy yeah. plug for United Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> so, the people at United were so great too. I got to, we promoting the film for that short period that we did, I got to hang out with a, a lot of like the corporate United people and they were really fun, but back up really quick. Thank you for all your work that you did to like help help people and in your 21 years woo! just got really excited there <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you while, while while she's just sorting out her video i'll tell you what we do we'll play the trailer um so the into oh, america's wild we've got a got a little bit of a trailer um that we can share with you so let's just run that my name is ariel tweedo and my passion is just inspiring people about life where do i live I spend most of my time in Alaska. I grew up in this isolated community and I watched some TV, but I never saw anybody that looked like me. My goal is to inspire girls and boys to be like, she looks like me, she grew up in a place like me, and now she's living her dream. One way I look to inspire kids is by getting them out into nature where they can feel connected to something bigger than themselves. Kayaking or rock climbing or mountain biking, it could also be taking a walk in a local city park. For me, being in nature is where I feel most myself, where I feel creative and energetic and empowered. That's part of the magic of being out in nature. You understand that you are part of this great big universe that is so beautiful and has so much to give us the important thing is to just get out there and experience it all we have to do is take advantage of this life that we have just make it the best we can
the scenery looks so stunning, mm. Ariel. Honestly, the some of the places that you, you you've been in that film is just amazing. Oh man, it was it was such a great experience. It was so much fun, and well, it actually came because of Flying Wild Alaska. Our camera guy on Flying Wild had worked with this IMAX company before, and he um, they were looking for someone to be in the show, and he recommended me. And they yeah they called me when I was in Alaska, and they're like, hey, are you interested in being a part of this IMAX film? And I'm like, yep, <laughs> don't tell me anything more. Like I'm in. But they flew me down, and I met with the director, and we fell in love. I'm at his house right now, like there, um, or his, yeah. And so he became a second dad, like his wife is like second mom. Their daughter is my sister. The son who runs the company is my brother. Like we just fell in love. We've filmed for like two years. Um, and so, yeah, and it was just, it was so fun and so, so different than filming our reality show because for the movie, it's like semi-scripted. You have to, um, you have to, everything's about the sun and the lighting and the clouds. Like there'd be a cloud in the sky and our director could like put his fingers up and he's like, okay, everyone has 15 minutes before the cloud passes to the T. It'd be like, oh, 15 <laughs> minutes is time. Like he's amazing. Like so good. And just the places we got to go, I got the best day of my life was learning how to kite bomb, like kiteboard. It, we did it in Hood River, Oregon. And I sucked so bad. I sucked as much as I sucked flying for like the first time, but <laughs> like when, but but then when you get when you stand up for the first time and when you fly through the air and you like land, um, it's the best feeling. So I had so much fun and I got to I'm so lucky. I got to go to some amazing places and see how beautiful our country is and meet amazing people and I learned so much and and it is like it's so important to get kids in nature because. I mean, if they're not jumping in the ocean, if they're not climbing trees or smelling flowers, why are they going to care to take care of the planet? And so I think it's so important to get kids dirty and to get them um, just like scraped up and just like get, go and play outside. It's so it's so good for your mental health and it's so inspiring. Like whenever I need to like get uplifted, I'll just go for a walk or a run. And that's where my ideas come from. And that's where creativity and curiosity comes from. And so, yeah, I just I, I loved making it. Yeah, and you, and you did this project with John Harrington and Jennifer Davis. John is an yeah. astronaut who yeah. you're, like, out to prove that astronauts aren't these stuffy engineers, right? Oh, my God. John is the goofiest person. So I went in thinking, like, oh, gosh, I'm gonna, this guy's going to be all buttoned up and really, like, like, straight and narrow. He's dancing in the parking lot. He's, like, having a – he had – we had so much fun. And I, God, I love John. And then Jennifer Farr Davis is this um, just – amazing lady she has the record male or female for the quickest through hike through the Appalachian Trail um it just is man her legs go up to like my eyeballs I'm like there's no way I'm gonna be able to like to keep up with her she's so fast but we she's so powerful and just like she's so inspirational so the people I got to meet on that like movie is awesome and hopefully theaters will open soon so people could watch it because like with the IMAX with like the 3D cameras and everything like the landscape the shots are just so pretty so, Ariel, Matt's got some questions that have come from our uh, chat room, live chat room viewers. Uh, Indeed, yeah. So, ironically, we'll start with with another namesake. So, this this guy is also called Matt Smith. So, that's Ooh. slightly odd. Uh, but uh, there we are. This could get very confusing. Uh, so, uh, his question actually is: uh, when when did you feel uh, most in danger, and why? I presume you're sort of talking about what, like flying and things like that. Flying, yeah. I was like mm, flying or lice. 
It's very different. <laughs> I mean, we'll, t- um, we'll take answers for both. That's, that's fine as well. <laughs> no, so flying, my solo flight, that was actually pretty terrifying. Um, my cross-country flight, that one was, I got just way off course. And then, um, again, like, I don't know, my plane had horrible radio comms. And so that one I lost course and then my radios went bad again. So that was a little scary, but I just need to go and find the ocean. And then, cause villages are all along the ocean. And so I figured that one out, but that was pretty terrifying. Um, other than that, I've been pretty fortunate to, um, like be pretty safe up in the air and and i i make it seem like i'm pretty dingy and like a like doofus but um when i'm in the plane i i i put my big lady pants on and try to be professional so um i mean (laughs) i need to i need to at some point and so yeah and i want to live and so i i know how dangerous i know how dangerous flying could be especially in alaska and so um yeah I, i definitely take it seriously I bet. Uh, Graham is asking in the chat room, saying, what's the most interesting place that you've ever landed, both as a passenger and a pilot? Um, well, I mean, I'm still a private pilot, so I haven't landed in anything like just at our cabin. Like we have a little cabin um, out in the boonies in Alaska near our village. It's like a 25 minute plane ride from our village. So landing there was pretty cool. It's just a, um, just a, like a little dirt landing strip. Um, landing with my dad in the mountains is the best thing ever. Um, you're, you're just like, e- there's no way you could land on that. And you're like, Oh my God, we just landed. How'd that happen? But, um, so landing with my dad is pretty phenomenal though. He's such a good pilot and he, um, yeah. And he's always like just constantly looking for landing strips, sandbars and little like mountain ridge lines. And yeah, it's, I, I just love flying with my dad. Oh, wait, time out. There was another fun one too. Um, the North Captiva outside of Florida. Um, that was cool. Cause I shot a little thing with M zero a plug for M zero a, um, they, <laughs> it's just like, isn't, I mean, like the water is so blue and it's so pretty and it's warm. So, and it, you're landing on this tiny little Island, um, which was really fun. So that was pretty neat. Wow. <laughs> uh, Richard King is asking, uh, Ariel is Jim still flying his Cessna 180? <laughs> oh yeah. That's his baby every day. He, um, I was just with him like a week ago and he had to fly his 207 into Anchorage and he swapped it out for his 180 and now he has awesome like bush tires on it. But yeah, he won't let me go near that thing without him. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I think he thinks if I just stare at it, I'm going to ruin it. So I'm not allowed near that plane without, without him. (laughs) Oh, to to be fair, I think a lot of pilots that own an airplane, that that's how the case is be like, yeah, nobody's actually allowed to touch this airplane. Yeah. (laughs) It was actually funny though. So I'm doing another show or it's just an episode on a show called know her name. And it's, we're doing an episode on Amelia Earhart. Oh, and wow. so we needed a, we needed some footage like quickly um, with me and my dad. So we're in there. He only has one yoke. Like first, the other one fell off. And so I'm like, Dad, I need it to like sort of look like I'm flying. And he's like, Well, just jump over on my side. We're in the air. And I'm like, Dad. And there's duct tape all over because there's holes everywhere in his plane. So yeah, my dad's flying around with like one yoke holes in his plane. <laughs> and I'm like, I think you could probably afford to maybe like get a new yoke and like some like better tape <laughs> or something well, but, the, yeah. gaffer tape that'll that'll mend anything if you if you oh, can, they say if you can't mend it with gaffer tape you can't mend it at all that's the end of it oh yeah. and, well i grew up like my yes oh sorry 
I was going to say the alternative is lease it back to a flight school and then it, it fit right in with the rest of the, the <laughs> training fleet. The planes. Yeah, he's, he's so funny. I just grew up. I mean, he grew like just duct tape everywhere. Like he, like I was saying when I was younger, like it's so cold where we're at, but he didn't get a heater for his plane. Me and my sisters would have to get out our hair dryers and go and sit and like heat up his engine with a hair dryer before he went to work. And that was like part of our job before going to school was to go and like thaw out his engine <laughs> wow. i mean just crazy uh we've we got uh, one more question uh, a couple more questions sorry from the chat room uh, so this is from uh tony saying question for ariel what's the formula for making entertaining tv whilst keeping it realistic there's a challenge for you yeah <laughs> well just being authentic like i think everyone has a story to tell and if you're curious enough about, I think, people in the world, you could pull out the stories and learn from other people. But, like, for me, it's just, like, I know, like, one, our family was in a unique situation because our my dad and mom's airline is so um, essential. And so, like, you need, you need good characters. You need a, like, unique situation. And, um, yeah, and then you need a good format for like for the story to be told. And so discovery channel was the right timing. It was um, like, yeah. And this like ours are, like I said, our show wasn't overproduced. We were honest and we just had fun. Like I love my parents. It sounds so corny and cheesy, but they are like my best friends. My sisters are my best friends. Our pilots. Like, I mean, I'm so lucky to, I have like over 70 brothers and sisters, like all our, most of our pilots ended up living with us while they're doing their training. So I'm just lucky to have such a great family and uh, amazing friends and people that challenged me and people that would tell me to like tone it down if I get too like excited about things. And my dad definitely brings me back down to earth because he says I'm overconfident in everything that I do. Um, and so I, yeah, if I, he's like, man, you're, you're an addict to a, adrenaline, which I am. And so it's just like, I constantly have to just like, okay, is, is am I chasing this feeling or what's going on with me? Um, but yeah, I think that's to go back to your question. You need good characters. You need good stories. You need a unique situation for people. And then you need the right timing is everything, too. Uh, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it, really? Because uh, you want it to be entertaining. But, of course, you know, it's very common, isn't it, for things to be over-dramatized mm -hmm. or, you know, careful editing, if you done, if you like, to make things perhaps yeah. appear differently to how it actually happened, things like that. Yeah, and also my dad got the final say in the footage because, I mean, he's the president of this big company. He cares so much about his employees, so he, he needed to make sure, like, is everything legal? Are the producers pushing you guys too hard to get a good story? Like, number one thing is safety in our flying, like, in, in the airline business. And so, like, he, he was really good at being like, nope, they're not doing that. Nope, not doing that. Sure, we could do that, but let's do it this way okay, that's a really good idea, but it's not legal. Let's like figure out a different way to tell this story. Um, so he was great at um, like doing, like just managing like stories versus safety versus like all of that. And then, and also like my parents, like no one in our family wanted, like we weren't like chasing to be a movie star or like none of us fight or are dramatic and like we're, we're not, we like each other and like we, we don't argue. Like if we disagree with things, we figure out a civil way to like overcome like different obstacles. And so, I mean, in some ways, like we're the worst family to be on TV because we're not, we're not going to like backstab each other or like me and my mom, like 
geez, number one, you would never want to fight with my mom. Um, so we knew that very early on not to make her mad. And then my dad is the most calm human being on the planet. Like you're, you're never going to get him to like get riled up. And so, um, yeah, so I, it was weird that like that people liked watching us because like in our eyes, we are sort of just like, like this or normal, but, um, but I think the, I mean, this, the storylines like were all really interesting because it is a unique place that we live in. And I'm like really happy that I grew up where I grew up. Well, honestly, Errol, the, the story, I mean, we could, uh, we, we needed to extend the show by at least three hours, I think. And just have <laughs> Invite me back. Hours. Invite me back. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll Anytime. definitely have you Absolutely. back. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. have you back. But, um, no, it's been so nice to talk to you, and I'm, I'm really, on behalf of all the team, you know, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and joining us and taking time out of your beautiful day there. No, thank you guys so much. And I'll plug one more thing. There's a new cartoon coming out on Fox, Ooh. and I'm a little voice. It's called The Great North. Um, and so that one, we just got picked up for our second season. But the first season should start airing in the next, like, couple weeks, I believe. But um, that, that's my one plug. For right now and then we have a, and then we have another animated um series coming out as, as well i guess people think i have a weird voice and so i've been doing a lot with uh, not weird <laughs> Inter- interesting with, voice not weird interesting that, interest, yes, an yeah. interesting interesting voice so now yeah i'm getting into animation and i'm just yeah i love like getting kids just excited and i like making people laugh and so um yeah so that's where that's going and i'm going to keep flying i still have my private license i'm like i still go flying when i go home and all my buddies have super cubs and we'll go flying and i'll start posting more pictures of those um adventures so before we go and let you go, get back to your uh, to your busy day on the beach, <laughs> Ariel. One last. Hey, question. I'm, I'm working right now. <laughs> one last question. <laughs> one last question, and uh, we'll let Armando ask. Uh, it's the all important last question that we ask all our guest pilots and guests that we have on the show. We we do we do very rarely have two guests on it on the same show. So Sean earmuffs. Uh, Earmuff Sean. Okay. <laughs> Ariel, <laughs> if money was no object. And you could fly any aircraft in the world, past, present, or future. What aircraft would that be? Yeah, man, I'm in love. I like the Beaver. Like the yeah, those are those are so fun. My dad used to have this Beach 18. Um, oh yeah, that that's he a classic. To, um, that one, that I I would love to fly that plane or an Albatross. Just to be able to take all your buddies and load up the albatross with all your friends, <laughs> coolers of beer, and then go land on like the lake and just hang out and jump off the wings and have a party, and then have your friend fly back. That'd that'd be that'd be so fun. But yeah, I, like I love um, yeah, I love all those three planes. I think would be my my top three. I don't need to go super fast. I just I like to be able to take like land in fun places and be able to like carry some friends with me. I Brilliant. like your style. All three of those are radial engine twins. <laughs> Happy oh my gosh, that's great. What a wonderful mm-hmm. answer. Yeah. So Ariel, Yay. on behalf of all the team here at PTUK, a big thanks for oh, coming qu- on the show. Uh, quick, how, how can they follow you on social media? And I was getting to that bit. I was getting to that bit. Don't panic, don't panic. Yeah, so where can... I thought you weren't going to ask this question. <laughs> no, where, where can... If, if, anyone, if anyone doesn't know where you are at the minute on social media, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, it's all pretty simple. It's just at Ariel Tweedo, and Tweedo is with one E, T-W-E-T-O. It's Norwegian. It's supposed to be Tevedo. Ah. 
Ah, there we go. Yep. My dad's a big old Viking. I got nothing from him. <laughs> uh, well, we wish you all the, obviously all the best and, and safe and safe travels, Ariel, because we know you love a good accent and um, <laughs> a cut every now and yeah. Let's definitely all keep in touch and um, yeah. let's one meet at Oshkosh or Reno and then let's all meet together to do your podcast in the UK sometime. If you come to the UK, you know, just 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 let yeah. us know. We'll be there. Absolutely. Yeah. Interest, interesting fact, by the way, it is exactly eight years to the day that the last episode uh, was aired. By the way. Oh no way! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Eight years to the day, literally. <laughs> oh, crazy! Yeah. Anyway, we need to let you. Uh, we need to, need to let you go. Thank you so very much. Thanks, for Ariel. Thank you guys much so appreciated. Much. And uh, okay, guys, yeah, we're going to move on to the plain truce. Uh, this week, Matt and uh, Al—that would be me, Matt—are uh, talking about window blinds. <laughs> Hi there again, and welcome to another part of The Plain Truth. Joining me again is the awesome Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. Hello. <laughs> now, listen, uh, for this week's uh, little uh, chat, uh, one thing that's always bugged me um, is, uh, I don't do a great deal of flying, as everybody knows, but one of the things that's always intrigued me is we're always told that we have to have the blinds up uh, during takeoff and landing. It doesn't matter whether it's daytime or nighttime. We always have to make sure that they're up. Now, I wonder what the actual, is there an actual reason why, or is it just the cabin crew being mean? Oh, it's the cabin crew being mean, oh, of excellent. course. I did wonder. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what's behind those blinds? Uh, well, the uh, windows. Absolutely. So, the windows allow us to see outside. So, the whole purpose of having the blinds up for takeoff and landing is that it enhances our situational awareness as to what is going on outside of the aeroplane. If we pull the blinds down, we have no idea. So, why do we need to know what's going on outside of the aeroplane? Well, that's going to be incredibly useful to you if for any reason you have to get out of that aeroplane in a hurry. An emergency evacuation might be an example of that. So it allows you the opportunity to assess outside and also it allows the cabin crew to assess outside. So for example, if there were lots of flames on the right-hand side of the aircraft, the cabin crew and the passengers at emergency exits are forewarned of that fire, those flames, and may choose to use an alternative route that doesn't take you to a fiery death. Okay, and presumably, that, I mean, that, that works the other way as well. I mean, presumably it means that, uh, again, I hadn't really thought of this, to be honest. I assume it means that um, uh, emergency services can see in. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, those, those windows are two-way, so absolutely. It, it's less so for, for that reason because... Um, the, I mean, it's obviously advantageous to be able to see through a window. If there's a window and a blind, nobody can see anything. Uh, but primarily, it's for the passengers and crew to be aware of what's happening outside. Captain Al, thank you. No problem. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. 
Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. There we are. Okay. Uh, thanks, Captain Al, as always. Great segment. Really enjoyed that. Uh, it's one of those questions I've always wanted to know the answer to is, why are we made to put the blinds down and put them up? It, it's, it's one of the things that have always bugged me. And now I know. <laughs> Armando, over yeah, to you. Yeah, to so you. I, I wanted to move on to, to Sean. So... Uh, I, in, in a moment of, on, of transparency, so Sean and I work together, as he said, out at Reno. Um, he does all the cool stuff. He gets to wear the pop, the pop collar and sign all the autographs and uh, shake hands and kiss babies. While, uh, oh, wait, me I and thought Mike... shake babies and kiss hands. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so you can only do that once before the cops show up. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> but uh, so, so Sean is just an amazing individual. We talked about it last week when, I was, uh, when we were promoting today's show. But uh, just what an amazing person, and, and he's just uh, – I've always been impressed by, by Sean's not just ability to fly and be competitive, but, uh, but, but just his uh, approachability, and he's incredibly well-respected in the Reno air racing and the sport class that we work in. Um, but, but Sean, so you, you soloed at, uh, at 17 in a Satabria. You went to Central Oregon Community College. You, you, uh, had a degree in aviation. You went on to become an aerobatic competitor, a flight instructor. Somehow in there, you started flying at Reno. Somewhere in there, you started uh, test flying airplanes. So, oh my gosh. So first of all, thank you for hanging in there and welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, th this is great. And, 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 uh, and we're going to talk about some things that are just absolutely captivating um, to our audience, but so so, how did you get into into aviation? Was was it a family thing? What how did how did you get into this? So it's I don't have any family that flies, um, and we had a family friend. I was about nine years old at the time. We had a family friend that was part of the Experimental Aircraft Association, and uh, he was giving Young Eagle rides. So he offered to me uh, my family to take me up on a Young Eagle ride. He had this Cherokee 140. Um, so, you know, at nine years old, they sit you in the right seat and you're out flying around and they take off. And then he's like, oh, hey, you want to fly? It's like, of course, nine-year-old kid. What, what nine-year-old kid doesn't want to fly an airplane? So <laughs> take, you know, take the yoke and like trying to peer up above the instrument panel, flying the thing around. And just like at that moment, you're like, this is so cool. I have to do this all the time. So um, I, had a, uh, I had a little, you know, like a lawnmower powered uh, mini bike at the time. So I sold that <laughs> and I bought my first remote control airplane. And over the, next, um, over the next year, my dad and I flew every single weekend at the remote control flying field, learning how to fly RC airplanes. And uh, then after that, we got a little bit smarter and we put a temperature limit on it to say if it's anything, you know, anything less than about 10 degrees Celsius, 40 degrees Fahrenheit for us Americans, um, like we're going to stay at home. But if it's above 40, we're going flying. And uh, almost every single weekend, uh, that kind of morphed into, um, you know, building and modifying remote control airplanes, testing remote control airplanes, and eventually doing um, competition scale RC aerobatics. So the same kind of uh, 
aerobatic competitions that we have with full-scale aircraft, we do with about third scale, 40% uh, scale um, extras and edges and whatnot, you know, flying the same arresty sort of uh, patterns and also freestyle competition. Yeah, and there's some great YouTube uh, videos on that too. If you look up uh, RC aerobatic competitions, it's, it's amazing and it's actually hard to tell whether it's a real aircraft. And I know over in the UK, there was a show, uh, an air show performer that was in an extra that would do a, uh, a show with an art, uh, uh, I think it was a half scale model of an extra. Um, really popular show, really great. And that was the only place that I had ever seen it was over in the UK. We actually have a guy here in Oregon that did the same thing. He was based in Salem. He had a two-seat mid-wing extra, and he had a, uh, I think it was a 40% scale mid-wing extra RC airplane that they would fly. Um, you know, obviously not in formation, but uh, because of the parallax area, you can have one aircraft, you know, the full-scale airplane is higher and farther out. The RC airplane is closer, but it's a much smaller airplane, so they look like they're in formation if you're standing in the right place in the crowd. It was really cool. Yeah, I thought that was really, really cool when, when – uh when I saw it for the first time over there too. But so I first, I, I want to move like right into the, the meat and potatoes. So how did you get involved with Reno air racing, which is where, where you and I met? Yeah, that's a, that's a long story. Um, and I'll try to keep it as short as I can. The, um, you know, I started flying. So like I said, we started flying remote control airplanes. And then at that point, I became aware of the Reno air races and started following it religiously. It's just the people at Reno, um, you know, both and all the classes of limited, specifically you know, on limiteds because everybody loves that, but also jet class and sport class, just because sport class was a little bit more accessible and jet, jets are cool too. Um, you know, all those pilots and a lot of the pilots that we get to interact with every day now, um, that, that kind of became heroes of mine. And just following the races every year, you know, who's the big name, who's blowing up, who's not. And that was, that was all really cool. Um, RC airplanes started getting really big for me. I started competing a lot, um, as I said. And I got to the point where I was kind of at a turning point. I could either decide to invest a little bit more in remote control flying and try to garner some sponsorship and continue down that path. Or um, I, I remember I was sitting in my room one day looking at all these, all these RC airplanes. I was about 16 years old, something like that. I was like, wait, the whole reason I got started in this was to fly full-scale aircraft. It was, it was a stepping stone because it didn't make any sense for me to do that at nine. And, but now I've proven that I'm you know, committed to aviation, so let's, uh, let's start taking lessons. So I didn't give up RC, but I severely scaled back on it. Um, started flying the Centauri like you talked about, soloed in that, then finished my private in a 172 uh, the Friday the 13th after I graduated high school. Um, and then uh, from there, I got a high-performance endorsement in a um, Cessna 182, and I went over and I flew with, um, who's now a friend of mine, mentor of mine for sure, Steve Wolf in the Pitts S2B. So instead of, I actually got a sponsorship, or not a sponsorship, but a scholarship to get my multi-engine rating, private pilot multi-engine rating. And instead of doing that, I took the money and I went and I did a full uh, pits checkout <laughs> with Steve Wolf, and which was, and I had about 80 hours, 85 hours total time, something like that. And that was the best thing I ever could have done. It taught me so much about how to actually fly an airplane and also to take the skills that I had flying remote control aerobatics and transfer those directly into a full scale airplane was incredible. Um, and you just see, you learn so much more about aerodynamics when you're truly operating in three-dimensional space. A lot of times when we fly airplanes, we take off, we go to a cruise altitude, we fly around at that altitude, and then we come back down. It's very two-dimensional flying. Aerobatics is not. You're maneuvering. You're fully using that third dimension. You have to think, uh, you know, your situational awareness involves much more energy management than uh, traditional flying does. 
Um, just really, really great experience. Fast forward a few years, went to college, you know, got an associate's degree, got a bachelor's degree in physics, minor in music, was towing banners for a couple of years. Um, tons of stories with that, but that's for another time for sure. <laughs> and then, um, uh, then went off and uh, I came back, I graduated Graduated college, graduated Oregon State University, and was looking for a job. A friend of mine, Tony Horvath, who works at Specialty Arrow, he cut his teeth working for Steve Wolf back in the day. And um, he was looking for, you know, I'd always check in with him because he always had cool projects. Uh, you know, most notably to his name, Steve Wolf designed Sean Tucker's airplane and Tony Horvath built it. Um, so that's, that airplane comes from the small little town outside of Eugene, Oregon, which is just insanely cool. Um, so Tony, um, Tony kind of took me under his wing. I worked two years for him doing experimental aircraft uh, fabrication and, and um, fabrication and building a little bit of testing here and there. We worked on a rotable airplane project and a bunch of pitches and stuff like that. Um, a really exceptional experience to get that hands-on fabrication experience and, uh, and engineering and stuff like that. And um, when I was working there, I started flying uh, competition aerobatics again. Um, and was competing in intermediate sportsman and intermediate uh, at the national level and um, ended up getting a call from a friend of mine who actually hooked me up with my, I met working uh, line service back in high school and uh, he's, uh, who hooked me up with my first flying job and he called me up and he says, hey, we just bought an extreme decathlon and we need, um, we need some training in it. None of our pilots are tailwheel rated. We want to start this upset company. I'm like, as it turns out, I just placed third at nationals in an extreme decathlon. So I feel like I could probably teach you how to fly that airplane. <laughs> it's like, I knew you'd be the right guy to call. So I uh, came over uh, to, and they were in central Oregon, came over, walked in the hangar. I see the extreme decathlon sitting in the back of the hangar, but between the extreme decathlon and me are two Fuga Magisters, which for those of you who don't know what they are, it's a really weird looking V-tail French trainer jet from the sixties. Um, and so we start talking and he's like, uh, I promise this will get there somehow. <laughs> um, so we start talking. He's like, hey, if you want, come on over and um, just pay for gas. You don't have to pay for the airplane, and you can get checked out in a Fuga. So I was thinking about it. I'm a, you know, just graduated college. I'm broke, living month to month. I was like, how can I make this work? Because they were doing all of the flight testing for the Lancer Evolution at the time mm -hmm. and all, the rest of the Lancer products at the same time. So... Um, it's like, how can I make this work? No, I just can't afford it. Blah, blah, blah. And I went back home. I thought about it for a night. I'm like, I need to figure out a way to do this. So I took out an unsecured loan for the gas. Cause it's like $6,000 in fuel, you know, and I came back over and said, Hey, does that offer still stand? And thinking if I come back, I kick butt, you know, in training, even though I'm a low time pilot, I don't have any jet experience. If I kick butt doing this, maybe they'll take me on and teach me some of the stuff they do with flight testing and Lancers and, and uh, turbine equipment and whatnot. And that's exactly what happened. If you fly a Lancer, Lancers, yep, there's a Fuga right there. <laughs> so if you fly a Lancer, there's a bunch of Lancers that race at Reno. And if you're an instructor and a test pilot um, in those aircraft, it's, uh, it's definitely a pretty good feather to have in your cap to say, yep, I've raced at Reno in a Lancer. So we ended up finding a way, um, ended up borrowing a friend's airplane that had a Lancer Legacy to race my first year in 2016. That's uh, this patch right here. <laughs> and um, yeah, my rookie year came out. We kicked butt. We qualified at like 295 miles an hour and uh, ended up placing, I think it was fourth in Sport Silver. And that's kind of how kind of how I got wrapped into the Reno world. And then it's just accelerated from there for sure. 
so and then Reno in itself is exhilarating flying. So we've had George Catalano, we've had uh, James Stringer on, and most recently we had Bob Mills on, um, all talking about their, you know, their experience and how they ended up at Reno and, and kind of what it's like to fly a lap around the course, at least in the in the sport class. But last year, so and this was the this was the moment where I knew Sean was an absolute rock star. Um, so last year you had your he uses that term very liberally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, and, and I've said, I've said it before. Reno is, I, I've been flying for 21 years. I've flown 26 different airplanes. And when I go to Reno, I don't say anything. And you know, pilots like to talk right. and I don't say anything because the stories are captivating the peop- the caliber of, of people, not just pilots, but the crews and the, and the instructors uh, is just unimaginable. Um, and this was one of those moments. This was one of those moments where when I was watching you debrief, I just said, man, this guy, this guy's got it right. Um, so, so you had a, this Mayday experience that, uh, and, and let me clarify that. So Maydays, so in aviation, Maydays are usually a thing, right? It's an emotional event and, uh, and, uh, it usually involves the FAA. There's all kinds of psychological studies about, oh, when people do and don't call a mayday because they're afraid of talking to the the FAA and the NTSB. But the FAA openly says, at Reno, maydays are free. So don't be afraid to call a mayday. So you had your own mayday uh, experience last year. Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) I don't know if you want to set the stage for that or if you just want me to start running. Go for it. I can't tell it better than you, so... (laughs) We, um, so like I said, the previous three years we had raced. Um, so last year was our, our fourth year campaigning at Reno. The previous three years we had raced in the sport class, uh, borrowing Lancer legacies, um, just kind of bombing around at around the 280, 290 mile an hour mark. And we decided that we wanted to actually go racing as opposed to just participate and, you know, try and go actually get some trophies. Um, so we came up with a team, you know, maintenance personnel, team owner, pilot, uh, test pilot, and all this stuff, media personnel, putting everything together, went out and bought a twin turbocharged glass air three. It was actually from a, a previous air, uh, previous owner had an engine failure with it, had to put it down on the road. It had some damage. Um, and we worked tirelessly for a year and a half, rebuilding this airplane from the ground up, completely changed the fuel system, ignition system, um, avionics package, data acquisition system in the airplane, um, and just working, you know, long, long, long hours to try to get this thing ready. April before PRS, we flew the airplane for the first time, uh, did, you know, all the phase one through April and May, went to PRS, um, which uh, for those of you who don't know, PRS is Pylon Racing Seminar. For those of us who know, we have to go there either to stay current or to qualify the new pilots. And that's uh, three months prior. That's in June. We get to go out and just have a ton of fun flying around the course and learning new things from, like our mother was saying, the exceptional pilots that come out to Reno that, you know, just truly incredible people to, to fly with. And um, had a great experience there. Came back home, tore the whole airplane apart again. Um, ended up, uh, you know, Macaulay Propellers, they built us up with this really cool race prop, installed a, a water and ADI system, uh, fuel, you know, fire suppression, all the safety items that you need as well. And then the goal was to run, started doing testing at higher and higher power settings. So in June, we'd only taken the airplane up to about 40 inches of manifold pressure. Our goal was to race at 65 to 70 inches in September. Uh, we only made it up to about 60 in testing. So that's what we did um, in September. Come September, did our practice, you know, came in, um, you know, in brief, all that fun stuff, tech inspection, came in, 
Uh, and again, after a year and a half of just tirelessly working on this airplane, came in, did our practice flight, everything went well. We did another test flight on the airplane. Everything was working really well, getting the water and ADI system kind of fine-tuned, and everything was working great at about 58 to 60 inches. And it was like, okay, this is going to be really cool. We're going to qualify first thing Monday morning. The first slot we can possibly get, we'll take the airplane down, wrench on it for three days, and then, um, and then do a test flight Wednesday. If everything goes well, then we should be able to run in like 70-inch 70 70 inch mark, which was our goal anyways, and then race the rest of the week. So take off to qualify. Um, I forget who the other two pilots were in that, but it was myself and then Conrad Huffseller, Sport 90, was uh, in the flight with me. And uh, we take off, we come down the chute um, using the good old uh, John Parker method, Blue Thunder, which Armando's wearing the shirt yeah. today. Um, he taught me, like, uh, well, him and Vicky Benzing, like, I remember just, like, sitting in the background and listening to them talk about their qualifying technique because you need to have a level lap before you call for the clock. Well, the definition of level is within the course boundaries and the course boundaries are about there's 200 feet to work with there. So you definitely have some energy management that you can work with if you uh, play your cards right. Um, so listen to them, trying to tease out exactly what they do to really get those good qualifying times. Came down, I hit the guide pylon at 391 miles an hour and uh, 60 inches of manifold pressure. Airplane uh -huh. was just singing. It was just working great. And I'm just sitting there hanging on for dear life, trying to keep this thing inside the course boundaries because it's going crazy fast. Get settled in, just about to call for the clock. And then they call, um, you know, all racers off the course. Uh, we've got fire bombers that are coming in. So, oh, that's, crap. That's <laughs> right. I forgot, just, I forgot yeah, that year they were fighting fires. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> just got this thing set up and it takes about a half a lap to get, you know, the prop and mixture and everything just right where you want it, right tuned in and fiddled. We call it twizzling, you know, get everything twizzled right where you want it. Crap. And, and, and I had this big head of steam coming into the guide pylon that now I don't have that energy to play with anymore. So I pull back off. I kept trying to keep spun up as good as I could, got called back on, came down on uh, as much of a head of steam as I could. But at this point it was only like 375 or something like that. Lost a good 20 miles an hour advantage. And, um, Came in, called for the clock, really good qualifying run. Airplane ran great, um, pulled off, got it cooled down, uh, come in, down with a beam, select gear down, and I get two green and one red. Like, well, these things happen, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, in itself, gear, a pretty simple emergency, something manageable, right? right? Yeah, you know, emergency. So there's one of, one of two things that could be going on. It's um, either the gear isn't coming down for some reason, there's some sort of hydraulic or mechanical fear that's going on, or um, two, and more than likely, it's some sort of indication failure because you're relying on micro switches that are out there and the elements and like they just fail. Um, so I bring the gear back up. I call the tower and say, hey, I'm going to go up to cool down. And I, I have a landing gear indication error um, showing only two green. I'm going to go up to cool down, diagnose the problem. And they said, okay, it sounds great. So I climb up a couple thousand feet over where I was. So I'm like 3,000 to 4,000 feet over the top of the airport. And um, try to get the gear down. Normal extension doesn't work. Emergency extension doesn't work. Still, same uh, same result. So, left main landing gear is green. Nose gear is green. Right main landing gear is red. So, so red is unsafe, right? Um, neither up nor down. It's somewhere we don't know where it is. So, after trying that two or three times, um, it's like, okay, I need help now. It's like I don't have enough eyes. I can't look underneath the airplane and see what's going on. So. I look down and I see Sport 90 Conrad in the flare, and I call him up and I say, "Hey, uh, you know, both him and Race Control." I say, "Hey, would you guys mind sending Sport 90 up? I need a chase to help diagnose this issue." And uh, like, okay, great. So he launches. 
comes up, forms up at me, forms up on me. It's like, yeah, sure enough, your right main is stuck about an inch out of the gear well, and it's just it's not moving at all. So we go through a variety of different ways that you know I had probably 35 or 45 minutes worth of fuel um, at this point. So at this point, I'm thinking in my head, all right, what are the options? So one option is um, land gear, you know, in control, gear up on the runway. If we do that, we're done for the week and we're not going to race again until next year. Um, airplane may be lost to a post-crash fire um, or post-skidding you know, skidding fire. Um, may or may not be. We'll see. Um, but I've got, you know, 40 minutes of fuel on board. If I'm going to go skidding the airplane down the runway, I don't really want all that gas on board because that can catch fire. So let's try to burn some of it off diagnosing the gear issue that we have. And um, so start diagnosing the gear issue. We go through a variety of different things trying to get the gear down. While doing that, we're putting so much electrical load on the airplane. We have two independent electrical buses, and the bus with the hydraulic pump on it failed, or it started it stopped charging rather. So the, um, either the alternator or the voltage regulator on that side of the system failed and stopped charging. So now I'm just relying on the battery to run the electric hydraulic pump to get the gear up and down. So I know eventually um, the, you know, by doing that, that electrical bus will fail. It will go to zero. And then I don't have a choice because um, uh, pumping it down manually wasn't working either. So um, at that point, it's like, okay, and remember before I talked about, we had a fully, it was a dual, uh, fully redundant electrical fuel injection and ignition system. So they run off of each of the two buses, um, and they, they share the bus load to keep the engine running. So what I did at that point is I said, okay, I know that this bus is compromised. I'm going to take my, all, of my engine, um, uh, all of my engine critical items and shift them over to this bus. So this bus, which is still charging, which is still good, is going to keep running the engine. And this bus, I'm just going to rely, which is compromised, is I'm just going to rely on to get, you know, swing gear as much as I can. So we finally got to the point where it's like, oh, we saw the gear started to move, right? It's like, okay, cool, something changed. So since something changed, I might, there's hope now. I was just about ready to say, all right, we're done. We're just going to come in and land gear up, and that's what it is. But then we got this moving. I'm like, let's try two more things, right? And just basically more speed, basically just trying to rip the landing gear out of the wings. So you get going really fast and you pull as much G as you can while you select gear down, trying to rip the, use the, use the excess, the load, you know, the, the load factor is going to make that wheel weigh a whole bunch more. And hopefully that extra weight, that extra force is going to rip the landing gear out of the wing and get it down. Um, so I tried one at like, 140 knots didn't work. I tried one at like 170, 180 knots didn't work. Um, so I was like, okay, we're going to do this one more time. I'm going to select gear up, and then we're going to come in at about 250 knots, pull six and a half Gs, seven Gs, or whatever it takes. If that doesn't work, the gear's never going to come down. So then we'll just come back in and land. And when I selected gear up, the engine failed, and all of the, all of the avionics went blank. And what ended up happening was um, – one of the circuit breakers that controlled the good bus broke, actually physically broke, which is very, very strange failure mode. And it fell down onto the bus that was compromised. And when that bus went to zero volts, it drug the, um, the good bus down to zero with it. And then uh -huh. since the engine is relying on electrical power, then that killed the engine. And it also took all of the avionics and everything else with it. So at this point, about 3,500 feet, 3,000 feet above the airport, 
a mile and a half north of the airport pointed at the airport. And I knew I was going to land at this point. It's like I was looking at the windsocks. Like, I know I'm going to land runway 14. If I have any sort of failure or if I'm going to come in and land gear up, I had already planned I'm going to land on runway 14 and I'm just going to go straight for a high key, do my simulated, you know, flame out pattern, which, which I practice all the time to come in and land on that runway. So when the engine quit, it was actually almost kind of a calming moment because at that point, instead of this question of, what are we doing? Where are we going? Um, you know, can I get the gear down? You know, it's, you're, all ha- you're having to make all these decisions. And um, when the engine quit, all of a sudden, all of those decisions are made for you. It doesn't matter where the landing gear is because it is where it is. You can't change that. It doesn't matter. You know, you don't have the choice anymore to go anywhere else. You are landing on runway 14 because the engine quit and you're a really bad glider right now. <laughs> so, um, and then I have this procedure that I use, which comes from military procedures to, um, to get down from a certain altitude and a certain airspeed down to the runway and land if the engine quits, which I practice on a regular basis. So at that point, it's like, okay, great. That's what we're doing. The biggest problem was since I lost all of my instrumentation, um, I had no airspeed, I had no altitude, and I had no radios. So when I keyed the mic to call the Mayday to race control, it didn't go through. And at the same time, Conrad's on my wing. He can't talk to me either because my radio's dead. He's trying to raise me. And um, when he realizes that I can't, and then he saw the prop feather, when he's like, oh, we're doing this now. Like, you actually have an engine failure. <laughs> so in that point, he tried to call back to race control and say, hey, Sport 3 is a mayday. Um, but at that point, there was a flight that was coming on the course. There was a flight that was coming off the course, another flight that was departing the runway, another flight that was landing. There was all this radio chatter, and he couldn't get a word in edgewise. All the while, I'm just, you know, happily gliding down <laughs> to the runway. Um, the big I, issue I, I for like me... I like how you casually say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just ca- you know, casually crashing, <laughs> essentially. <Yeah. laughs> well, at this point, I'm planning on more or less landing, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> The biggest issue that I had was we had um, uh, we had an elect- electronic flight instruments instrument system, a glass panel, and we had a backup, another electric instrument um, that was glass as well, but a backup instrument that was battery powered. So when the when both buses failed, the main EFIS um, went away. So there's no airspeed, no altitude there. I don't have any information on the airplane. I'm busy trying to get the engine relit, and then once I realized that I can't relight the engine. I was like, okay, we're landing runway 14. I'm at high key. Everything looks good. I look over at my backup instrument, and it's dead too. So at this point, I'm going, well, of course that failed because everything else did, so why not? So at this point, I don't, you know, altitude you can judge fairly well within, especially within like three or 4,000 feet, how high you are off the ground. But airspeed, you can't. You, it's all based on feel, and feel in an airplane is bad. It's based on like you know where you put the trim and what aerodynamic consideration, how heavy you are. There's all the stuff that, that plays into that. And the trim in a glass air is spring-based, so they don't actually have a trim tab that aerodynamically drives the elevator to where you want it to be. They actually have a spring that provides force one way or the other to kind of force the elevator to be somewhere. And um, it just has a weird feel to it. But I knew I had it trimmed for about 140, 150 knots. So I just put a couple pounds of back pressure. I said, I know that's going to be safe. Um, because I want to be on the high side, not the slow side. If I'm fast, I know I can fly the airplane. It's a controllable. Everything's fine. If I'm slow, I, you know, poten- potential is um, uh, slow speed. You lose efficiency. Worst, um, you know, worst case scenario, you end up stalling 
or it could lead to a stall spin at low altitude. It takes about 3,000 feet to recover from a spin in a glass air. And if that happens, you're dead. There's, there's nothing, you know, no two ways about it. So being a little bit faster is better than being a little bit slower. So I get it low key. I'm downwind to beam looking at the runways like altitude. Okay. Airspeed unknown. Um, start my turn to base. And when I turned to base, I realized altitude still okay. Airspeed way too fast. <laughs> so uh, at this point, you know, full rudder slip, just trying to put as much drag on the airplane as I can. I came over the threshold um, at about 30 feet off the ground, which is right where I wanted to be altitude wise. But Conrad said, uh, you know, he was watching the airspeed and he was on my, and Conrad, amazing formation skills, amazing chase pilot. He was exactly what I needed the entire time to just be feeding me information when we had uh, radio comms. But then also when, when my, when my failure happened, um, he was able to tell other people what was going on and be able to make sure that we were kind of going in a place that, um, you know, going in a direction that was going to keep both of us safe and at least get me back to a, back to a runway or the airport environment. And just absolutely incredible having somebody of that caliber on my wing to help me out. Um, something that you don't get at a normal place, you know, in Reno, we have all these amazing pilots. You can say, Hey, I need help. You get in an air or get on the radio and help me through this. Most of the time as a pilot, you're just on your own out flying around. You know? mm-hmm. um, and so we and at this point, at this point, I'll interject because if you're on the ground and you're on the support staff or you're in the uh, grandstands at Reno, you can see all of this happening until about this point with, that Sean's talking about, which is 30 feet over the threshold. At that point, there's a little hill between the where, where everybody is and, and that arrival end of runway 14. So at this point, where you go on from here in the story, we couldn't see anything. Right. <laughs> so... I come over the fence, uh, come over the threshold of the runway. I'm, it's like I said, airspeed's about right, or altitude is about right. Airspeed is way too fast. I can just tell it's way too fast. Conrad said that we were doing, um, when he looked at the airspeed indicator, we were doing about 155 knots. And I would, if I had an engine failure, I would aim to cross the threshold at, um, you know, 110 knots, 100 knots to 110 knots. So we're good 40 to 50 knots above the speed that we should be. And remember that kinetic energy is proportional to velocity squared. So that much extra energy is exponentially more, or that much extra airspeed is exponentially more energy that you have to figure out how to dissipate somehow. And um, also, as I'm coming into the flare and disappearing behind the hill that Armando was talking about, um, I don't know where the landing gear is because the landing gear indicator isn't working. Uh, so it could be down, it could be up, it could be like one down and two up or some unknown configuration that would be really bad. So I'm coming into the flare. That my, first, my first consideration is where is the landing gear, right? What do I have to deal with? Is this airplane going to try to dart real hard one way? Do I have no gear, which is the ideal scenario? I can just set it down on the belly. Um, what's going to happen? And I knew it wasn't, I knew I didn't have all three, you know, all three down the log. So as I'm coming in, um, I was just feeling in the flare, all right, this is about where the landing gear should have touched. Nothing left or right. Okay, good. Gear's up, or at least mostly up. That's, that's a good sign. So from here, you keep on coming down. And uh, I can't say there's this thing called ground effect, for those of you who don't know, called ground effect in, in aviation. It's basically, you know, you, you've got a wing that has high pressure air on the bottom of the wing, low pressure air on the top of the wing. So, and at the wing tip, because we can't have an infinitely long wing, the high pressure air spills over to the low pressure air and creates a vortice. And this vortice creates actually a sizable amount of drag on the airplane. So if you can get really low to the ground, it kills a, a lot of that vortice. And because it kills a bunch of that vortice, um, it's effectively the same as increasing the efficiency of your wing because you have less drag. 
on the glass air with the gear down, I can't say that I ever felt anything I would classify as ground effect. The glass air at six inches off the ground has a huge amount of ground effect. So all of a sudden, I have way too much speed. I come down, I get to about six inches, and it feels like the airplane accelerated. Like, oh. Now this 11,000-foot-long runway is starting to look awfully short because it has a cliff at the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so trying to figure out what I'm going to do. So I start, like, slipping the airplane sideways, um, you know, trying to get the airplane slowed down. They're just using the side plate area of the fuselage to slow down. I wasn't too comfortable doing that a whole lot because, I, one, I didn't know what my airspeed was. I don't know when the airplane's going to snap and catch a wingtip and then a cartwheel. And then, best case scenario, I'm in the hospital. Um, and, then, uh, and then also, yeah, so that was the main consideration there. So now it's, okay, I'm level. I'm going to keep the wings level from here on out. How do I slow the airplane down? I don't have brakes. Right? I don't have anything. I don't have air brakes. I don't have wheel brakes, nothing. So the only thing that you have at your disposal at that point is the bottom of the airplane and friction. So if you come in, and the whole idea is you come in and you just try to hit the belly of the airplane on the bottom on the bottom of the airplane on the runway, and use that frictional that frictional force will take energy away. Every time you impact the runway, it'll take energy away from the airplane. Actually, a sizable amount of energy away from the airplane. So I come down, the airplane skips off the ground once, skips off the ground again, and I could feel it slow down each time. Not, not a whole lot, but a little bit. It's like okay, this is working, um, and uh, it's like okay, I think I have it slow enough. So I'm going to come in, I'm going to touch the back of the belly of the airplane on the ground. As soon as it touches, I'm going to throw the stick forward and try to pin it, kind of like a wheel landing in a, in a tailwheel airplane. And um, when I did that, I had too much energy. I wasn't as slow as I thought I was. So instead of pinning the airplane, it ricocheted the airplane. And I came up, um, the photos show probably about 30 to 35 feet in the air, and like a 30 degree right bank and like 15 degrees nose up. Some really bad attitude. So at this point, I disappeared behind the hill. They didn't know anything that was going on. And then everybody in the grandstands, all they see is this airplane come up like this and then go back down like this. And then, so then from there, I'm still alone, just trying to fight the, wrangle the airplane down onto the ground. I keep, I get a lot more aggressive about trying to skip it. Um, at one point, both of the canopies departed the airplane. Another point, the windshield expl- shattered and exploded and came in on me. Another point, the instrument panel broke away from the airplane. The EFIS that was uh, in the aircraft actually came out of the panel, hit me in the chest, and landed in the co-pilot foot, uh, footwell. Um, I'm trying to think. This, oh, yeah, and then the battery, the 24-volt battery that's in the back of the airplane, is just it came loose and was just ricocheting around the inside of the, inside of the airplane. Really, really violent event. And um, some things that we found out afterwards was at both um, there's four engine mount ears that hold this twin turbo, you know, 550 pound twin turbo, 580 cubic inch in, uh, engine on the front of this airplane. Well, both of the top engine mount ears had broken. And uh, so the only thing we put safety cables on the engines so that uh, that run through the firewall through a different mount so that if the engine mount breaks for whatever reason, the engine doesn't just depart the airplane. The only thing holding that engine on the airplane right now are those safety cables. And um, so finally, you know, all this stuff's going on. Finally, I get the airplane slowed down. I could actually feel it kind of like a speedboat. You're up on step. I felt it fall off the step. Like, okay, now I know I have it. <laughs> so come in, set the airplane down, stick all the way forward, and then just managing, you know, directional control with the rudder until the airplane slows down. As I'm sliding, you know, screeching to a fiery halt, I, the first thing I smell is like sanding fiberglass, which I knew the smell of from my days working on airplanes. And then uh, the next thing I smelled was burning fiberglass. So I knew I was on fire. Um, I'm still doing about 60 knots at this point, way too fast to jump out of the airplane. So uh, we had a fire suppression system. I pulled the fire handle. 
Um, funny thing about that is, you know, you only have to pull the fire handle about an inch for it to actually activate. Th that handle's in the back of the airplane. Like I pulled it, <laughs> I pulled it like I meant it. <laughs> and um, finally, the airplane comes to a stop. So now it's time to egress the airplane. Egress procedure for a glass air three is canopy latch open, push the canopy open, belts off, get out of the airplane. Well, remember I said the canopy is at the part of the airplane. But again, that just that you practice these procedures and that muscle memory takes over. Um, you know, you go, they talk about your, uh, in training, they talk a lot about your, um, your cognitive brain and your lizard brain. And in moments of high stress, your brain goes back to your lizard brain. What have you trained so much that's just innate to your being, right? And, and this was one of those things. You look back and you can go, um, I went canopy latch open, push the canopy open. There's no canopy there, but that's what I did just because that's what I trained so hard, you know, previously on the ground uh, when I wasn't on fire. Um, and then as I'm pulling the belts off, I look over the side, uh, the canopy rail, and the flames are coming up the side of the airplane up to about, you know, up to about chest height. Like, okay, it's definitely time to leave, um, get the belts off, and I just book it away about 60, 70 yards away from the airplane. And, uh, yeah, it's, the fastest, uh, a friend of mine the fastest was, you've ever run in your life. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> um, a friend of mine was sitting, he was holding short in an L39 on the other runway. He saw the whole thing happen. Uh, he takes off. Like I salute him as I'm watching our airplane burn to the ground. And, uh, I get a text from him about an hour and a half later. And it says, the only thing it says is you run like a girl. <laughs> rude. <laughs> so I text him back. We'll see how you run when your airplane's on fire. You know? <laughs> Quite. Oh my goodness! See, see uh, this is this, guys. This is why I was telling you when Sean was telling this. Now, now, a, a couple of days ago, Sean asked me, "Well, how do you want me to tell this or whatever?" I said, "Man, this is your story." And one of the things that impressed me about Sean the most was his ability to to recount this story and everything that he knew about the systems of the aircraft, how he got it, and what his. Uh, thought process was during the emergency, he was able to recount this. Uh, I, I would say it was just what, maybe two hours after it happened when we debriefed or something like that. Something like that. You know, the first thing you do is um, you give the thumbs up to the CFR guys who are trying to put the fire out. Yeah, I'm okay. I don't need help. Uh, one of them comes over, he picks you up in the truck and he's like, all right, you know, do you want to stay here a little bit longer? It's like, no, I don't want to see that thing anymore. Uh, so take the parachute off, you know, throw it in the back seat. And then drive over. They dropped me off at my crew and my, my parents over there. So it's like, give my parents a hug, give my crew chief a hug. Hey, I'm okay. Yeah, we're good to go. Um, so they go out and start dealing with the airplane. The first thing I do is run to a debrief with sport class leadership, then run to a debrief with RARA, then run to a debrief with the NTSB, then run to a debrief with the FAA, then finally run to a debrief with the sport class as a whole. And then after that, you finally have a chance to get out of your flight suit, which reeks of burning fiberglass. This is the worst yeah. smell in the world. And, and that's like, yeah, it was about two and a half hours, two, two and a half hours, something like that before I... I finally got to the point where I could tell my friends that are in the sport class about it, not just the FAA, which who knows what, you know, how they're going to react to it, which was poorly, but, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And then, and then finally be able to get out of it and kind of just decompress for a second and go yeah. you know, grab a drink and shake, shake some hands with good friends and stuff like that. Yeah. We were the, we, the sport class, we were the first place that you could debrief this story with a beer in a hand. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I had to, so there's a Richard King in the chat room asks from engine failure to being on the ground. What was that? What was that time frame more or less? Uh, it was about 40 seconds. Yeah. So that whole story that took wow. me 
I don't know, five or 10 minutes to talk happened in 40 seconds. That's amazing, isn't it? It's just, a, that- I, I mean, it, you know, you, you you tell the story and it, it, it's one of those, isn't it? The, the time is, uh, I, I suppose it's, uh, everything must be in slow-mo for you in, 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 in a situation like that. I don't know, 155 dots over the fence is, it's smoking. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the beginning of Star Wars where the fly, the stars are flying by. A little right? bit, like, yeah, you just see center line, you know, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, and, and we're going to get to some questions from the chat room here in a second, but uh, so, so this kind of flying, your ability to, to, to know these systems and, and know about energy management, which is something that we talked about. Um, I know it's something that made me get back into books uh, in my day-to-day flying about energy management and kind of getting good. And, and, and you know who's best is glider flyers. Glider, people that fly gliders know energy management so well. But, but after that, you went on and you went to test pilot school, right? Correct, yep. And, and we'll finish that up with the beautiful aircraft sitting behind you. Yeah. <laughs> Do my best Vanna White impersonation here. <laughs> yeah, it is not a virtual background. So actually, I, I will, I will uh, one of the questions from the chat room was, well, normally test pilots have a military background. Uh, what, what are the actual qualifications and how did you end up there? Yeah, so I do not have a military background. I've been completely civilian trained. Um, a very fortunate, very fortunate series of circumstances and running into really great people that took me under the wing and gave me the on-the-job training that I needed to be successful doing what I'm doing. And it's a very incremental approach. You know, it starts out with, hey, go flight, you know, go get checked out in this airplane. Then B, like, okay, go ferry this airplane around a little bit. Then C, go do some training in this airplane. Go teach other people how to fly the airplane. And then, then from there is like, after the first initial envelope expansion happens, go out and do some systems flight testing and stuff like that. And then, then you can work into doing the initial envelope expansion, how, um, you know, working on taking the airplane from a very limited flight envelope to its entire flight envelope and, and finding the corners of how the airplane operates. And then finally working back to actually doing first flights on a brand new airplane, something that before was just a pile of parts sitting in somebody's hangar. And then you take it to the air for the first time, you transform that, air, that pile of parts into an airplane. Um, and it's kind of incrementally working down that process. There's no, at least in the United States, to work as a test pilot in the civilian sector, there are no formal qualifications on the experimental side. Um, When you start working on the certified side, you have to have what's called a designated engineering representative in flight testing. And that's something that I'm currently working towards right now with the schooling the education I'm getting at uh, National Test Pilot School and then also the on-the-job training I'm getting at places like Stratus Aircraft um, and working with some really, uh, really you know, nationally and internationally recognized test pilots that work in the experimental aviation industry. It's just uh, the only way for a civilian to really get into that is it's very happenstance. Like I can't, I can't tell anybody this is the path that you take to go do this. The only thing that I can say is A, go out and fly a ton of different airplanes in a ton of different environments and a ton of different operations. Uh, that'll give you a breadth of experience that will maybe land you in the right spot at the right time to meet the right people to go do the right work. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to unmute. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and then that led to you being there at Strata. So one of the things that, that, uh, we wanted to talk about was the Stratus 716, which you just recently test piloted, right? Correct. Yep. And and, and I'm going to pre uh, preload a question: Is 
test flying an aircraft for the first time ever, what is it that you're actually thinking about and what kind of planning goes into something like this? Yeah, the planning. So if we want to talk about the Stratus, so I've done 19, 18, 19 first flights, uh, something like that, of a variety of different experimental aircraft. Um, in terms of first flights on a prototype, this prototype, the Stratus 716 was the first prototype that I've flown. And uh, that's, it's one thing to go take like an RV6 and go do a first flight on that. It's a very proven design. There's thousands of them flying around. You know the structure. You know the, you know, everything's very well proven. And the aerodynamics have been proven before. Yes, it's a brand new airplane. And this specific one has never flown before. But um, but there's a lot of really good intel around it. You can even go out and fly one. You know, go fly a friend's airplane first and then go jump in and fly for the first time. So you have a really good knowledge of what's going on. Um, to go fly a prototype for the first time is to, it's a different level of uh, level of preparation for sure and really where the preparation started for me on this program was about four years ago when they started putting this aircraft the proof of concept airplane together and to get the engines for this airplane the company didn't want to invest in a brand new engine Um, so they bought and the engine in this aircraft both aircrafts is a JT-15D-5 it's the engine that's on uh, typically on beach jets and citation ones and twos and stuff like that so the company actually bought a Beach at 400 and, uh, to get the engines for this airplane, high-time airplane, scrapped the rest of the airplane. It was on our anyways, but the engines were good. And um, so one of the things that we did is we sat down, we took a look at the Beach Jet manuals, and we said, okay, you know, the engine is... The engine is the only thing that differentiates an airplane between a glider. It's the thing that makes you go up, right? Um, so we want to understand that thing really, really well. And so we started operating. And fortunately, I had experience from a previous job actually flying corporate in a Citation II. So I'd operated the engines in the real world a little bit. Um, came to Stratus, took that experience with me to do some ground, a bunch of ground testing with the beach jet and uh, figure out the procedures and systems and and uh, how the engine operates on the beach jet. We were able to transform that knowledge um, into procedures that work well in the Stratus. From there, it's a matter of sitting down with the engineers and talking through each individual system in the airplane. And um, how, how do these systems work? How are they engineered? How are they put together? How are we going to effectively ground test these systems so that we know that they're going to work properly in the air? And then from all of that knowledge, build a procedure that's going to be concise, um, concise enough for a pilot to understand when their airplane's on fire, um, but also detailed enough to really understand how the airplane's put together and how it's working. And then from there, you can tease out, and then we flew this airplane. And I didn't do, Dave Morris did the first flight on this airplane. He's another sport class racer. He's done first flights on like 45 prototypes. Like he is the guy that does that for you know the past several decades. And um, did an excellent job flying this airplane. We all worked together to help make that happen. Um, and then learning, you know, sitting under him, watching him and both him and Len Fox, uh, do the flight testing on this airplane, then get wrapped into a bunch of the system testing on it, understanding this aircraft, and then same thing again when they decided to come out with the new prototype 716. What are the similarities and differences? And what are the really big, in this kind of case, where a company started with the design, they built another airplane that looks like a very similar, you know, to somebody who knows nothing about aviation, they would say that they're the same airplane. But at their core, we know that they are completely different aircraft. It's very easy to get wrapped into this trapped thought process of, oh, we already did this once, we're just doing another one, right? It's all the same. And in fact, it's all different. So now you go back to square one. Yes, we now have this larger knowledge base, 220, 230 hours flying this airplane around. All of that is available, 
you know, it's good experience and good knowledge that will lead into flying a new airplane. Um, but more specifically, how is this new airplane different than what we're used to? What are the traps that I'm going to work myself into because I think I understand this airplane so well, but I actually don't because I've never flown it. Um, and uh, and then building procedures around that, doing ground testing, you know, sitting down with the engineers and the mechanics, helping them watching or helping them put the airplane together, um, really understanding how the airplane's put together, how all the systems work, being part of the ground testing, making sure that all the systems work properly, and then finally working up to that. You know, our first flight was 22 minutes long. It's just you know, it's months and months, years of work to get up to this uh, this singular event that's so short. Yeah, and one of our one of our contributors in the chat room, Micah, is talking about. You know, flight testing is completely different nowadays than it was in the 1950s. So with with computer modeling, you you had an expectation of how it was going to uh, perform, right? Correct. And a lot of our flight testing, um, a lot of our modern flight testing is uh, you have a model of the aircraft. This is how the model. This is how the aircraft should operate based on the mathematical model. Then um, build procedures and systems and and um, you know, build procedures and systems and flows and patterns that will that fit that model, but have um, have margin around them so that if something isn't inside that model, we can still safely operate the aircraft and get it back on the ground. And then go out and gather data on the airplane, compare that data to the model, and then what are the differences? Revise the model to then understand what the airplane actually is, so that when we take the aircraft further in its envelope, um, we we know what, or we have a better expectation of what will actually happen since we've refined the model based on, um, based on the experience, the experience that we have with the airplane. This is all about slowly expanding the envelope of the aircraft. You don't, you know, it's back in the, I remember, uh, researching, I think it was the first flight on the F4 Phantom. It's like a, a one and a half hour flight or one and a one, one hour, 40 minutes, something like that. They took off, they stalled it. They did aerobatics in it. They went to Mach 2 on like the first flight. <laughs> like these things would never happen in the 21st century. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> Well, Sean, I, I want to thank you for uh, for talking us through that. We're going to go to some questions from the chat room here in a second, but before I do that, I wanted to just congratulate, yeah. <laughs> thank you, congratulate Sean, because uh, we had a fantastic guest on the show a couple months ago. That was Miss Jody Ruger, and you guys are now an official couple. So I wanted to congratulate you guys on that. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, we met um, we met at an aerobatic competition of all places about seven years ago, and uh, it took us about three years to kind of find each other from there. But yeah, she's an exceptional woman, an exceptional pilot, a fantastic flight instructor. Um, you know, flies air shows and is uh, currently on furlough with the airlines, but hopefully we'll get her back flying for the airlines sometime soon. And, uh, yeah, it's just thank you very much. Well, <laughs> if nothing else, so we we like watching her videos that she posts in the pits. So <laughs> very very cool. Carlos, did you uh, want to go into some chat room questions? Oh, blimey, yeah. So I was just engrossed in the conversation there. <laughs> actually, one of the things I was going to ask myself, actually, a cheeky question for me, Sean. You know when you're doing the flight, you know, the actual initial flight test on a brand new aircraft, do you, uh, obviously, do you have all the facts and figures in front of you of, like, the stall speeds and, and the flap settings and, and all the bits and pieces? Or is it stuff that you learn as you're doing the flight test and you have a kind of pen and pad on your, on your knee and you're writing down all the figures as you're, as you're, as you're flying? A little bit of both. Um, so, for instance, like I talked about, we have an aerodynamic model of the airplane. 
And then we're going to go out and uh, test the aircraft to figure out what the airplane actually is and then compare it to that aerodynamic model, uh, either to verify or confirm how good the model is. So um, based on the model of the airplane and the configuration of the aircraft for the first flight, we have a series of speeds that have um, you know, speeds and loads and pitch angles and beta angles and all that kind of stuff that uh, with significant margin built into them and I'll have the basic, the basic numbers, you know, very pertinent numbers. I mean, what's my, you know, what's my approach speed? What's my rotation speed? What speed am I going to climb at? Um, what are the limitations, the basic limitations I need to keep the airplane inside? And I'll have that on my kneeboard. Um, and then from there, when we take off, we're also noting, you know, in a traditional world, you would sit down, you would note, and when I go do somebody's first flight like a Lancer Legacy, you actually handwrite what the actual speeds are and compare that to what you thought you were going to do and how the airplane was going to perform. Um, in these aircraft, we actually have a very sophisticated uh, data acquisition system that captures all those numbers for us and then at, you know, much higher quality than any pilot could ever do. And then that gets shuffled off to the engineers and they compare and contrast. Um, and then especially when we start getting into performance testing, it's uh, the aircraft is supposed to do X. And uh, so we'll go out and see what the airplane actually does. It's Y. And, um, and then compare how X is to Y and how close it is. Wow. Well, thanks for that, Sean. We're going to move on to questions from the chat room. Yep. So we've got one from Richard Adams. So Richard's asking, how much does it concentrate in the mind when instead of reading the checklist, you are devising and writing it or at least proving the design limits? Um, the, yeah, the concentration is very high. It, it's, uh, the nice thing about starting, and I always encourage all my students in an airplane to, um, sit down and write their own checklists, you know, take the checklist that's written, say for a Beechcraft Bonanza is something that uh, Beechcraft came up with and their lawyers had to approve, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily make sense. They're very, very, very good. And you need to follow those procedures for sure, because those are the things that will keep you safe, but they don't necessarily make sense in your mind. So to sit down and rewrite the checklist in a flow and a pattern that makes sense to you is, is really important because it gives you a way to internalize those procedures. Um, for aircraft like this, we start from square one. Nobody else has ever flown this before. Uh, there are no procedures to operate this airplane, but like I talked about, you start with, well, the engine is the same as a beach jet, so let's start with beach jet, and you just start gathering all that information, bringing it together, and by the time you get to the point that you actually fly the airplane, you've spent so much time revising checklists, so much time studying systems, that you really have internalized the information. It is it's part of your being by the time you get into the airplane. But Tony S. Um, is asking, uh, do test pilots normally have a military background and what qualifications are required? Yeah, uh, most test pilots do come from a military background. I'm, um, you know, I'm the outlier in that I don't have any military background. I'm completely civilian trained, and that is possible. Most of the test pilots that you'll find at larger companies like Textron or um, uh, Piper, uh, a lot of those people are kind of groomed up originally they may have been military pilots uh, back in the 50s and 60s but a lot of those people have been groomed up through the company um the i can only really speak to here in the u.s i, I don't know about other other countries but um there's no formal like i said for experimental aircraft there's no formal uh, certification to be a test pilot um if you're doing flight testing for the furtherance of certification you have to have what's called a der designated engineering representative and you get that by working under the tutelage of somebody else so it's all very much on the job training 
Uh, there are places you can go, like National Test Pilot School, uh, which I'm working on my master's in uh, flight test and evaluation down there um, in Mojave, that uh, civilians and uh, people of uh, you know, people from other countries can go and get that kind of experience, usually taught by military people as well. Um, yeah, but no formal requirements, a lot of on-the-job training, a lot of personal study, and, uh, and yeah, typically military, but we're starting to see a wider range of civilian test pilots uh, in recent years. Actually, you, you referenced the, uh, the 50s there, um, Sean, and uh, main man Micah, um, who's in uh, Maine, uh, ironically enough, he says, can you talk about the difference between flying an aircraft for the first time uh, with computer modelling versus what it might have been like um, w- without that back in the 1950s? Yeah, the, you know, if I could transport myself back to any point in time, it would probably be the, 19, the late 1950s and early 1960s. I mean, that was the heyday of being a test pilot. The downside to that is they killed a lot of people because they didn't really understand what they were doing. But that's where you come across airports like um, like Edwards Air Force Base in, in uh, the Mojave Desert. They have runways there that are, you know, 20,000 feet long that run off into the desert, and they go for you know the the dry lake bed there is you know, 20 miles long. So you have a lot of a a lot of capability to slowly expand. Like you're not just, you know, in this airplane, we took off and we went flying. Um, back in those days, you would, obviously there's a huge amount of wind tunnel testing that's done. It's the same thing that's done today. That's, you know, part of how we proof the model between the computer and empirically with the real airplane. Um, you know, how does it function in the wind tunnel? And that tells us a lot about how the airplane is actually going to fly. And obviously they had that information back. The Wright brothers had a wind tunnel. Um, but uh, it, the other thing, you know, a lot of things that they have is the ability to uh, fly in ground effect to, to take a more incremental approach into getting up to actually taking the aircraft flying for the first time. Another one from uh, my man, Micah, uh, going back to your, uh, your Mayday earlier on. Um, he's asking, so he says, if it was such a major crisis in the aircraft, was there any time that you thought it uh, might be a good idea to uh, grab some altitude and bail out since you had a parachute? Uh, no, it, there were no controllability issues with the airplane. So, um, you know, had I had a loss of control or, um, you know, loss of control, seize controls or midair or something like uh, midair or something like that, yeah, absolutely, I'll bail out. But the aircraft is, you know, perfectly controllable. Whether the engine is running or not doesn't matter. It's a glider. It's a really bad glider, but it is a glider <laughs> without the engine running. So, and I'm above a runway, so you just go land on the runway. That's all there is to it. And uh, Richard Adams follows on from that. He said, did you um, determine the root cause of, uh, of the original failure? We did. And uh, the original failure with the landing gear was um, there's an uplock pin that goes through a slotted hole on the landing gear, and that pin slid. Uh, and it's not designed to slide, but it ended up sliding. It ended up failing. And when it slid, the gear came out at 360 or 370 miles an hour or something like that. And it started actually tearing the landing gear open. When it did that, it bent that whole pin and it jammed the uplock. So there was actually no way that we were ever going to get the landing gear down. Uh, Graham Haley uh, says, is there something that you took away from the emergency that uh, you would want to share with other pilots as uh, a kind of lesson learned? <laughs> it does uh, I mean we could sit down and talk about that for hours but, <laughs> uh, the um, I'd say to summarize a few you can come up with kind of two or three uh, one of them that Armando uh, talked about spoke about was uh, systems knowledge you need to be able to build your airplane inside out and if you can do that then your ability to recognize an issue 
and correct for that issue in the air is you have so many more resources available to you. Um, and uh, it just to be able to recognize the problem, make a decision in the air based on what's actually going on, what data do you have available to you, and then come up with a come up with an action to take. And then it's kind of, you end up in that decision-making circle, right? And so I have a problem, recognize the problem, understand the problem, come up with, impl- come up with a solution, in, uh, implement the solution, and then observe the reaction, right? And you just kind of keep going around and around and around in that circle until finally either really bad things happen or really good things happen. Um, so that's definitely one takeaway. Um, the other takeaway is, another good takeaway is no matter what happens and, and, Hopefully, people, you know, flight instructors are still saying this, that old adage in aviation, aviate, navigate, communicate in that order. The most important thing when you're in an airplane is to keep flying the airplane. Never, ever, ever stop flying the airplane. If you have the airplane under control, even if you hit a brick wall, your chances are, if you hit that brick wall straight on and in control, your chances of survival are many, many, many times higher than if you hit anything, even just completely flat ground out of control. Um, so aviate first, then figure out where you are, where you're going, and then talk about it. <laughs> but just keep flying the airplane. And then the third one uh, is no matter how experienced you are, no matter how uh, well you know your airplane, no matter how much time you've spent practicing, um, task saturation is a very real thing. And it's... Uh, the human brain only has so much capacity and, and that's, I mean, we have to go to sleep every day, right? Your brain needs to rest. And when you end up in a highly stressful environment like that, um, your mind is going to start getting rid of unimportant information. And eventually you get stressed out enough, whether you recognize it or not, that your brain is starting to get rid of what it deems to be unimportant information. That's actually really important information. Um, and to recognize when those things happen and, and know that for yourself. And that's how you set your personal limitations when you go out to take a flight. Obviously, my personal limits, uh, limitations for a flight are much higher than most because I fly every day. And I fly some very advanced airplanes and, you know, 135 different types or something like that. I have a huge breadth of experience to take from. Uh, somebody who's a private pilot with 50 hours of flight time, their personal limitations should be quite high and, uh, and they'll start building experience to bring those limitations back down. But to understand that about yourself, how you make decisions and, um, you know, what are the things that are going to trigger you to get task saturated is very important. That's awesome, Sean. Hey, listen, thank you so much for agreeing to come on with us. I wish you the best this year. It's a super shame that, uh, that we had to cancel Reno, but like I said, I think it was a, the best thing for them to do. And, um, everybody that's listening, uh, go over to Facebook, check out Havoc Air Racing. Um, can't wait to see Sean out there next year. Well, hopefully we'll be out there at PRS next June uh, yep. or maybe this this uh, little meetup that we're going to do. But uh, And then also the Stratus Jet. Uh, uh, I think we were talking before the show. It was at least the 714 was at Oshkosh. Uh, it was at Reno. The 716, you know, Sean just talked about his flight. So, I, uh, I can't wait to see what happens with that jet and, and make sure you guys go over to the, uh, the internet and check out those. If, if you're in the market for a small, a small jet for your, yourself and your family and your friends, but yeah, Sean, even if you're not check it out, yeah. it's a cool airplane. So yeah, it's uh, stratusaircraft.com guy. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being on. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers, Sean. Oh, we do have, I, 
Thank you, our producer John in, in yes. our ears. Because you had the earmuffs on, yep. I do have to ask you one final question. <laughs> now you are a test pilot, so it's kind right. of a funny question to ask a test pilot. But this is if money was yeah, if money was no object and you could fly any aircraft in the world, past, present, or future, as you're already doing, what aircraft <laughs> what aircraft would that be? Um I've you know, somebody I've been asked this question a lot, actually. And uh um, I've narrowed it down to two specific missions, I think. Um, the first one, and I think the one I would choose, is the orbiter. Uh, the, and specifically, like, the first test flight that they took to space, that they took into orbit. Um, just that whole mission from launching a rocket vertically and then getting into the roll program, going into, uh, you know, getting into orbit, staying in orbit, coming back, back down out of orbit, turning into a really bad glider, coming down and landing. Um, and, <laughs> and to... Uh, to understand like that that mission is just test point after test point after test point after test point and you don't have time to go back and redo it um that would have been one that vehicle would be absolutely incredible to go fly um and just because it is i mean it's the most complex uh machine that human beings have ever built um but also too just to be a part of that uh, um uh that specific mission is really would be really incredible and um, the other one is the Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 mission, which is not so much uh, aircraft, but the two spacecraft, the capsules. And that was the first time that they did orbital rendezvous. So actually, you know, one of the things that we love that we do in, forma- that we do in, uh, in uh, sport class and at Reno is fly formation. And formation flying is so much fun. And it's, you know, about the most fun you can have in an airplane next to doing aerobatics. Um, <laughs> well, that's the first time they flew formation in space. Uh, so to figure out, you know, sit down and figure out how to do an orbital rendezvous and then fly formation with another capsule in space, and that would have been a really incredible program to be a part of as well. Tony S. reckons yeah. that I'm sure you'd like to barrel roll a 707. <laughs> I wouldn't say no. I've rolled a lot of airplanes that I probably shouldn't have. Um, but, I, you know, rolling an airplane isn't nearly as special as people think it is, as, as text so aptly showed us. So. <laughs> That's right. Awesome test pilot answer right there. The orbit, the <laughs> orbiter, and the, and the space capsule. I, that's a first for us as yeah. an answer. So. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome, Sean. I can't wait to see you, buddy. Thanks. Yeah, it'd be fun to. We'll have to. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to come out and see you out in Reno. Are you coming out in September? You betcha. I'll be there. Cool. Yeah, we'll see you there. <laughs> All, All right, my friend. Cheers. Thanks, Sean, for coming on. It's been absolutely. It has been awesome to hear your story. So thanks for that, Sean. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Definitely, anytime, anytime yeah. you're free. We'll we'll we'll, we'll let uh, Armando do the uh, do the conversations. That's probably the thing. So we'll say goodbye to you, Sean, and uh, we're going to move on to the aviation news. Cheers, Sean. Take care. Cheers, Sean. Cheers. See you next time. He, he was on the clock. <laughs> so we've got uh, some news kind of uh, headline bullet points to go through uh, on this week. Indeed. And, uh, and, uh, and because, because we're, well, basically what we're going to do is we're going to whiz through it. So in your best CNBC News style voice, please, uh, uh, Carlos. So <laughs> headlines are, so we've got the first one here. This is British Airways announced immediate 747 fleet retirement. Incredibly sad, I will say, for that one. 
And uh, speaking of retirement as well, we spoke about how Qantas were uh, planning on retiring their, their, planning their farewell flights, the three, last week. Uh, one of the listeners, Ray Davis, was actually actual, uh, he was able to actually capture some video of, uh, of the Sydney flight. And he's uh, actually managed to send that video over to us. So thanks for that, Ray. I think uh, Matt's going to play that out. Yeah, that, no, that's playing now. <laughs> and uh, next up, this, this one is uh, Ryanair. Some of you might have seen this one in the news this week. Ryanair, they had a flight that made an emergency uh, landing at Stansted Airport. And uh, two people have been arrested uh, for that, uh, over that uh, incident. And you probably saw that, uh, that was uh, escorted into Stansted Airport. Uh, another one, this is uh, Virgin Atlantic and uh, finalising a £1.2 billion rescue deal. Uh, which is great. Uh, Armando, Armando, take number four. There we go. Um, yeah, this is, you know, we always preach patience, especially in these troubling times. Three Philadelphia women were charged with assault for attacking Spirit Airline employees over a delayed flight. Um, something in the arrest records say that the passengers intentionally struck the employees with phones, shoes, water bottles, metal boarding signs, fast fast food yeah so it's a waste of food were, that's uh, what i say that's a waste of food yeah that's those toaster paninis you're right um, you know oh my gosh these uh these are these are trying times and and my goodness you know i i feel bad for these employees but i can't imagine what situation led to this matt what's the next one uh no idea somebody take that one uh, alaska airlines flight forced to land when a passenger threatened to kill everyone on board uh, the video uh, shows a man walking in the aisle and shouting that he would kill everyone on board in the name of jesus not something you want to do on a packed flight uh, no. uh, the rest of man has not been charged with anything and police are investigating armando this is there's a lot of things that you can hit as uh, sean was talking about but apparently a bluebird aviation dash eight crashed on landing in somalia with all three pilots surviving with minor injuries Local media is reporting that Bluebird Aviation's general manager, Captain Hussein Muhammad, is saying the plane was from the uh, was from Djibouti earlier this morning, and upon landing, a donkey crossed the runway. They hit the donkey, <laughs> swerved off into a trench, the side of the runway, but the the crew are perfectly okay. That's a lot of damage for a donkey. Oh, oh yeah, the condition of the donkey still. Still not known. Oh, no. <laughs> no. That's the, oh, really? <laughs> anyway, number seven. This is uh, Nepal Airlines grounds all its Chinese-built aircraft. A bit harsh. So the Nepa- uh, Nepali airline claims it cannot afford to fly the aircraft, and thus these planes will be grounded for the foreseeable future. Beyond that, the Y-12E aircraft has long been questioned for its functionality and performance. <laughs> Next one is uh, Matt. We're going over to the Netherlands. Are we? Yes. Uh, okay. And uh, this is uh, the uh, the Netherlands is taking uh, Russia to court over downing of Malaysia Airlines MH17. Um, the, the Kremlin has consistently denied involvement in this matter. Mm. <laughs> Next uh, one, Armando. We're going 385. Uh, yes, 380s. Uh, we are still talking about them. An Emirates A380 is to return to the skies with passengers for the first time since March. It's the first time that A380 commercial passenger service that Emirates has operated since March 25th when flight uh, 262 landed in Dubai from Sao Paulo, Brazil, the day after 
uh, United Arab Emirates authorities closed the country's airspace. Uh, the aircraft operated from London to Paris. There we are. And that is, your, that is basically this week's news in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> oh, apparently there's a military oh, thing. Oh, we don't need military. There's gray stuff. They're shooting, they're shooting things. They're blowing things up. They're probably ejecting out the tops. And, I don't know. Engine failures and night vision goggles. There you go. Military. Right. Complete. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, you know, efficient as, as, efficient as ever, my friend. And, all, uh, comments, look- uh, all comments to Armando at PlaneTalkingUK.com. <laughs> yeah, all incoming jo- clues. <laughs> to Jonathan Warner, I'll write you a personal email with some military news. <laughs> Here in a little bit. Quite, absolutely. Uh, one more bit of housekeeping, if that's all right then, uh, Carlos, because you and I, are, I'm joining your social bubble as of we tomorrow. Are. And we we're are. off somewhere a bit special, aren't we? I know, I know. This is amazing. Anyone who's listening to the show live now and is off to the Shuttleworth air show tomorrow, me and Matt are going to actually be there. We are actually going to say the words... We're at an air show. Yes. Uh, so me and Matt are off to the Shuttleworth uh, air show tomorrow. We have our passes. We ha- actually got sent through some very nice shiny uh, media mm. press passes. So hopefully we'll have our own little VIP area somewhere near the front of the flight line to take some great footage, videos, and pictures to bring to you in a future show. Yeah, so absolutely. hopefully yeah, that'll be good. That's going to be good. And also, uh, you were saying, actually, because obviously there is no Oshkosh this year, but um, uh, you, were, you were listening, I, th- I think, to the Airplane Geeks. And, and they were saying uh, that they're sort of they're, they're doing like a virtual, a virtual, thing, yeah. a virtual Oshkosh. Yeah, I know we had a, an air show in the UK that we met not too many weeks mm, ago, didn't yeah, we? we did, um, yeah. That was a kind of virtual air show, and Oshkosh can be doing the same kind of thing. Um, so it might pay for if to, if you go and check out the links, just type in and, and, and search for Oshkosh, and I think all the details are on their website for their virtual show. So that should that should be really good. Uh, and that, EAA. EAA Spirit of Aviation Virtual Expo events, 21st to 25th of July. Uh, you can check that out at all the together.org forward slash. A uh, question, yeah, I don't know what question the question is. Yeah, well, just, just go mark. to eattogether.org, I think. That's probably probably your best bit. I don't know what's happened there. Now, on Monday, obviously, there was uh, some sad news just outside Houston this week, but uh, uh, we're going to cover that in a little bit more detail next week. Yeah, that's right. I think the NTSB just had their hearing this week about the uh, final results of the crash at Atlas 3591 outside of Houston. Um, so we're we're sort of digesting that. We're going to talk to some experts uh, in with that with that mishap, and um, we'll go into in a little bit more in depth next week to, about it. Um, Absolutely, but, and uh, uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, so we'll look forward to that. Get a bit of an update. And uh, Carlos, just go. Uh, the uh, sorry, Graham Haley in the chat room is saying uh, there's also a v- virtual react this weekend too. Um, uh, don't have the details to hand there, but obviously I'm sure a quick Google search will put that right. If not, I'll make sure that they are in the show notes. So thanks Actually, for that, Graham. Worth yeah. noting quickly that Jonathan Warner will be with us tomorrow as well, oh, hopefully, okay. all being well yeah, at cool. uh, Shuttleworth. So that's good. Yeah. Social media links then, if you didn't already know. Social media links, you can send us a picture, audio, text, or a video to our WhatsApp number, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. And also you can contact us on our 
our email address, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Take yourselves over to our website, all com. We have got a brand spanking new website. If you haven't seen it yet, take yourselves over to the website. You'll absolutely love it. Matt has put an absolute epic effort into the website, and it looks stunning. And also, on the note of that as well, if you haven't already got yourself a PTUK t-shirt, I know three have been purchased this week already. We have got some fresh, new, shiny PTUK t-shirts that have come straight from our printers and our embroiderers, so you can grab yourself a nice, shiny, it's a Gildan very nice soft cotton 100% cotton t-shirt with the PTK logo embroidered on the front take yourselves over to the shop on the website you can grab yourself one there also if you're going to do your shopping as I have done only twice this week I'm sorry Matt through Amazon you can go through the Amazon link on our website and uh, do your shopping via our link that'd be awesome and if you aren't already and if you want to join and help the show and produce and help produce some of the massive great content that we have including this week because this week's been an epic show you can become a patron of the show, so take yourselves over to our website. The Patreon link is on there, and you can also donate through the PayPal button. We absolutely love you for that. So there we go, as all the social media links. Certainly is. So it's been a fantastic show. I'm going to have to say a massive thanks to both our guests, Ariel and Sean, for coming on the show again. And also a big thanks to Armando and uh, Matt for all their uh, hard work on the show this evening and as well not forgetting our producer john for all the work he does as well during the week so a big scenes, round of yeah, applause absolutely. for john yeah uh, with the social media links for our guests by the way so uh it's at ariel tweeto a r i e l t w e t o uh it's uh, obviously many of the websites that she plugs www.poppingbubbles.org uh fnx.org forward slash watch forward slash show uh, forward slash native shorts um into america's wild.com is one of the websites and fox.com forward slash the great north i think was the court cartoon that she was talking about obviously sean van hatton uh take yourself to facebook and search for havoc uh, Havoc Air Racing uh, again and it's the, the airplane he was talking about uh, that he had behind him was the stratusaircraft.com uh, partner program obviously all those links will be in the show notes so if you missed any of that you'll find it at the bottom of wherever it is that you're listening to today's show so big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening thank you to everyone who's joined us tonight well, i hope you've enjoyed tonight's show it's been absolutely fantastic been <laughs> and uh, thanks as well to everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast each week through all the relevant audio podcast platforms so that's it we're going to wrap up uh, tonight's show episode number uh, 327 scrolling <laughs> yeah. up to the top of the list there <laughs> we're just uh, clicking so away at it have, <laughs> i know it's multitasking for you indeed so uh have a great weekend everyone so from me carlos here in my studio from matt over in the ptuk main studios and from armando over in his charlotte studios have a safe and great weekend everyone take care take and care, goodbye bye 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 y'all